Mm. That was a regular job for you, wasn't it? Oh yes, almost. yes, uh -huh. many of these things uh -huh. were. Inner Sanctum, Hybron uh -huh. laughs at the story that I used to depend on Inner Sanctum in New York to pay my rent. One day I called my exchange for my call on Inner Sanctum, and the lady at the exchange said, you didn't get a call, and I was ready to fire the exchange for their inadequacies. She said, the calls are out, but there's no call for you. So I called High Brown, and I said, what is this about no call this week? And he said, no, I'm sorry, there aren't any women. And I said, there's no excuse, I gotta pay my rent, you know, where's the call? And he said, can you play an elevator man? And I said, sure, you bet I can. And I did and paid my rent. You would depend on these things, and sometimes you'd get so confused with the shows on your schedule that it would run it terribly close. You'd get elevators waiting for you. Buzz Meredith used to hire an ambulance uh -huh. to get from NBC to CBS in New York. It was two blocks, <laughs> but if you got stuck on Fifth Avenue, you'd be dead. In 1947, network radio revenue exceeded $200 million for the first time. The four major networks of NBC, ABC, CBS, and the Mutual Broadcasting System added 104 new affiliates. They now covered 97% of the country's commercial AM stations. Top 50 average program ratings jumped 23%. The reason? By January of 1948, nearly 11 million babies had been born in the U.S. since the end of World War II. New parents were staying home with their young children. The result was the most popular season in the history of radio. Mercedes McCambridge was speaking about her good friend, famed New York radio director Hyman Brown. That year, Brown's top show, Inner Sanctum Mysteries, at a rating of 18.6. The show was the 8 p.m. lead-in for a two and a half hour block of programming, which had CBS dominating Monday night. She is family to me. I urge you and your listeners to get a book she wrote, an autobiography the called Of Mercy. Mercy. Ah, you know it. Yeah. Yeah. It's an incredible book, just incredible. And she is such an example of courage and fortitude in a sense. She had a terrible time with alcohol mm -hmm. and she's not ashamed of saying that she had and she's had some personal disasters in her life. Well, she went out and did Lost in Yonkers mm -hmm. for 600, some odd performances all over the United States and did much better than they did here in New York City and uh, she loved every minute of it. Hyman Brown was born on July 21st 1910 in Brooklyn, New York, to poor parents who had immigrated from Odessa. Although he graduated from Brooklyn College in 1931 with a degree in law, the radio bug got in the way. It all began much before 1933 because in 1929, I was on the air Saturday mornings as part of a kind of almost high school, college stunt so that I could write something for the school paper. I was doing Jewish dialect things on NBC in the morning. I'd been on two weeks when I got a phone call from up in the Bronx and a woman on the phone says, my name is Gertrude Berg and I got a series called The Rise of Molly Goldberg. Could you come and meet with me? She said, I like the way you do Jewish dialect. I've got a story about a Jewish woman. You could be the salesman and the um, 
play the part of Jake, maybe, the old man. I was all of some teenage. At any rate, she would be Molly and write the scripts. And sure enough, I sold it in 1929 to NBC, to Phillips Carlin. He soon began working for Frank and Ann Hummert. In 1938, he and his family moved to a 10-room apartment at 285 Central Park West, where he would live the rest of his life. By that time, Brown was producing as many as four shows per day. When I was doing Dick Tracy, for instance, we had a door that you simply couldn't use except once in a blue Sunday because it creaked. The door was just a bad door. We considered it. It creaked, and oh, whenever we found it in the control room or in the studio, I'd hit the ceiling. And then suddenly it dawned on me, maybe there's some very, very good things about something that's very, very bad. And that creak impressed itself on me, and I said, would you believe it, fellas? That creak's going to be the star of the show. And that's how the creaking door happened. And when I sold it to Carter's Little Liver Pills, I had been doing Grand Central Station. That was for Lambert Pharmaceutical. And the man who owned Carter's was very close to the Lambert Pharmaceutical people because they were both drug houses. And he called me one morning and he said, I play golf with whoever runs and owns Listerine. I would like a show like that. What have you got? So I came down with the creaking door and I came down with Bulldog Drummond and I came down with, I figured the first night of works, I would do dress rehearsal because after all, we'd be there the night before the show sure. opened. So <laughs> he listened to all three shows and he said, I like that mystery series, but I don't like the title, The Creaking Door. I said, what's wrong with The Creaking Door? I don't know. He said, did you have any other titles? Well, with a kind of tongue-in-cheek, I had no other title at that moment. They were down on Park Row, way, way downtown, and I'd gone down on the subway that morning. And in back of the New Yorker magazine, there was always a one-column ad for a group of detective stories published by Simon Schuster called Inner Sanctum Detective Stories. So I said, how about Inner Sanctum? He said, that might be better. I didn't know what the relationship Then I first had to go to Simon Schuster and make some kind of an arrangement with them to use the two or three words that belonged to them. But the creak was mine. I had created that. There are only two sounds in the United States that carry a trademark, not only a copyright, the NBC chimes, which you use, sure. and the creaking door. They're both trademark. Okay. That's how the creaking door happened. He was a man who loved dramatic radio. Brown's career would stretch into the 21st century. Long after radio audiences had abandoned the medium for TV, Hyman Brown continued to ride the trains downtown to beat the dramatic radio drum at the offices of broadcasting executives. How many shows were you doing a week? I did as many as four and five shows a day. Oh. I did Terry and the Pirates and Dick Tracy back to back. And early in the day, I would do David Harum. And then I would do a half hour of Grand Central Station and so on. I would say that somewhere between 35 and 40,000 broadcasts passed through my hands. More than once, he was successful at convincing network brass to give radio drama another try. I think there is something so special between the listener and the other side of the microphone in the studio. Very special. I don't feel I'm talking to two men now. I feel I'm talking to a whole world. All of the people that you have created for me because of what you're doing. 
Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode 93. My name is James Scully. Tonight on Breaking Walls, we ride the rails with some of the most famous stars in radio history. During radio's golden age, there were three main production hubs, New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles. With so much daily content to produce, radio's greatest minds developed programs and episodes centered around every recognizable theme, like the New York City subway. But while this episode will take place in or around New York's public transportation system, we'll focus just as much on the relationships forged by radio's legends on both coasts. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this show on every podcasting platform and at thewallbreakers.com. Tonight's opening theme song is Keely Smith's version of It's Been a Long, Long Time. It was arranged by Nelson Riddle and recorded for her 1959 long play, Swingin' Pretty. If you're on Facebook, join our Wallbreakers Facebook group to keep in touch with news like Burning Gotham, our completely original audio drama series, which will be set in 1830s New York City and debut later this year. Listen to the teaser at thewallbreakers.com. You can also support these shows for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. As luck would have it, I created Grand Central Station. Let's say the signature with the train coming yeah. in. Oh, yeah. That's all out of my head mm. because the trains that come into Grand Central Station are diesels and you wouldn't know that you were coming in on a train. It had no excitement. So I said, what do I care? The Santa Fe is going <laughs> to come into Grand Central. And every week we got hundreds of letters. Grand Central is not. You're doing a train that would never go under Park Avenue, all that malarkey. But I did for about eight, nine years. I stayed with Grand Central about three years, four years. I couldn't take the agency executive, and I got out of it. <laughs> From New York, Pillsbury Snow Sheen Cake Flour. Today presents a surprise star in Grand Central Station. All aboard for better baking, lighter cake. You're on the right track with Pillsbury Snow Sheen. As the bullet takes its target, shining rails in every part of our great country are aimed at Grand Central Station, part of the nation's greatest city. Drawn by the magnetic force of the fantastic metropolis, day and night great trains rush toward the Hudson River, sweep down its eastern bank for 140 miles. Flash briefly by the long red row of tenement houses south of 125th Street. Dive with a roar into the two and one half mile tunnel which burrows beneath the river and swank of Park Avenue. And then. Grand Central Station. Crossroads of a million private lives. Gigantic stage on which are played a thousand dramas daily. <laughs> Grand Central Station first took to the air 
on Friday, October 8, 1937 on NBC's Blue Network. The series was remembered as much for its opening as for the light melodrama each episode presented. Proving how little we really know of what goes on in the mind of a child. In March of 1944, Grand Central Station moved to CBS and shifted to a Saturday morning time slot. It began airing, live, coast to coast on every CBS affiliate, like at 10 a.m. on CBS Los Angeles' KNX, at 12 p.m. on Chicago's WBBM, and 1 p.m. on New York's WABC. Grand Central Station was sponsored at various times by Listerine, Rinso, Pillsbury, Tony Home Permanent, cream of wheat, and Campbell's soups. For instance, I come into the parlor where Mom and Pop are talking, and as soon as they see me, they quit. And Mom says, run along, Willie. Your father and I are discussing something. Oh, that's all right. I like to hear you when you're... Do as you're told, son. You wouldn't understand anyway. You're too young. Huh, too young. I understood a whole lot more than they thought. I knew the winter had been bad for us. Light melodrama was common on Saturday mornings, and the show featured some of the most talented New York performers, like Mason Adams, Arnold Moss, Santos Ortega, Jim Amici, and Jan Minor. Was there uh, much difficulty in breaking into the field, as it were? Because, Ed, there were a, really a, a small cluster of actors and actresses who participated in most of the major shows. Uh, all these shows were auditioned. They just didn't give the parts out. No. And uh, the, the people were so good that they could get the same parts over and over again. You know, the, a small group, where they had the inside track because nobody could beat them. They could audition. And, uh, how how did you hard manage to, break to, to break into that? Well, uh, WTIC was responsible, really, because Gertrude Warner and George Petrie and Ed Begley were all here, and they went to New York. And Tom McRae was here, and he went to New York, so that when I arrived, all the WTIC people had started mm -hmm. and were working in New York and introduced me to different people and got me at least into some of the auditions. So each one of them really had something to do to help me get going in New York and to tell me what to do. You know, it's, it's not, you just don't know where to go or what to do unless someone tells you. Gosh, I felt terrible about Joe. And next day at school, I got bawled out plenty on account of I wasn't paying attention. Hyman Brown produced the series in its early years. What would you consider yourself, Hi? What was your label in radio? Because you directed, you also created. What do you, and what level do you think of yourself? I never had a label. It was a way of life. I created a show, I produced a show, I sold a show. I didn't put a label on myself. But I belonged to the AFTRA to the guild, because occasionally I'd play a taxi cab driver, or somebody wouldn't show up. The big gag was, Everett Sloan would go around and tell everybody that I would give them the wrong times for the repeats. We'd have to do a repeat to the West Coast, so I'd give them the wrong time, that would mean that they didn't show up, so I could play the part. <laughs> but believe me, the time, I'll never forget Myra McCormick saying, hi. It's 10 minutes to 12, and Inner Sanctum has to go on. Do you know where I am? <laughs> I said, where are you? He said, Newark. Oh, no. Oh, no. oh I played his part wonderfully. Don't. <laughs> they, all, they, all, they all used to rip me about that. But I'm a frustrated actor. I wouldn't put a label on myself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, it was, I don't know that we had labels. The craft that doesn't exist anymore 
because there is no radio. It exists on a much higher level. Was the sound effects? If you had good sound effects, man, as I always was blessed with, you could trust them to do anything. And we didn't have tape. We didn't have cartridges. We didn't have machinery like they have today. You didn't have digital. And you couldn't press a button and a CD would go right to the sound. They had to spin the record. They had to cue it up. Oh, the skills. Two, three men would have to do an inner sanctum for me many, many times. But the man who's gone, Jack Amrine, he had four hands and six feet on the hat. Eventually, like many radio shows, Grand Central's audience shifted to TV. CBS canceled the show in September of 1953. ABC picked it up for a final half season in January of 1954, weekday mornings at 11 a.m. Grand Central Station's last episode aired on April 2nd, 1954. Anybody want to ask me anything? Chew the fat? Working with Phil Spear on suspense yes. and space, what did he demand as a director for his work for Perfection, and practically on the first reading, he was very much like High Brown about nobody got over scale on that show except Howard Duff. And Bill had heard of me, I think through Lorene Tuttle. And I got a call, and I had never heard of Sam Spade. <laughs> I was so busy doing my own work and in my own little world, and someone said, oh, if you work for Bill, you're in the inner circle. And I said, what inner circle? I've always been in the inner circle. What are you talking about? And they said, well, don't turn it down. Take it. So I did. You'd sit around the table. It was really the most delightful, witty show to do, and he was a delightful, witty man. And it was just tremendous, tremendous fun. There was always... John McIntyre or Jeanette Nolan, Paul Fries, but he was a marvelous guy to work with. I remember that I used to have a radio set in every room and I would tune in on my days when I was allowed to be home, not at the studio, on my favorite programs and go from room to room doing whatever I had to accomplish and I never left those people and I used my imagination. They were in my mind's eye and my mind's eye was sufficient <laughs> for me at the time. It created wonderful vistas for me, which, of course, television limits me. I must see them. I must see what they're doing, and I must see it their way. I love television uh, for other reasons, to watch. Hello? Hello? I'd like to send a telegram, please, to the radio audience. Dear radio audience, there's a table reserved for you tonight at 51 East 51. Fun and everything and swizzle sticks. Love, Kay Thompson. Send that as a straight wire, will you, and... Oh, charge it to CBS. On July 21st, 1941, 
CBS's pilot series forecast presented a potential nightclub comedy called 51 East 51, starring Kay Thompson. 51 East 51 is also the approximate address of the newest, smartest, swankest supper club in the city. Almost anything is more than likely to happen there, and uh, usually does. In the early 1940s, Kay Thompson was known as a musician, composer, actress, and writer. Her work on forecast at CBS introduced her to director Bill Spear. The two were married in 1942. I was a music critic. Music is what I really uh, started out to be and what I think I still know best, although I've gotten away with, excuse the expression, murder. But in 1929, my brother, who was very much older than I, was copy chief at Batten, Barton, Durston and Osborne, the great advertising agency in New York. The agency had just signed up. These were the very new days, please remember, of radio. It was a very, very new medium. But in those days, BBDNO, to shorten it, had inveigled the Metropolitan Opera Company into signing up an exclusive contract with the agency to use its artists. Roy Durston, the vice president of the agency, was having lunch with my brother and said that he had now done this great thing, but now he was suddenly confronted by the problem of making programs that would fit into an hour. Nobody knew enough about the opera lingo and how long was Una Furtiva Lagrima from L'Elisa d'Amore. What was this thing from, uh, was that a fast or a slow one from Rigoletto? <laughs> and uh, Tristan and Isoldo was probably too heavy. And he needed somebody to arrange programs with the conductors and with the singers and with the artists. And my brother said, well, my kid brother, meaning me, Bill, who was a music critic at Musical America magazine, getting, I think I was up to $32.50 a week, uh, you know, which was high living in 1929, said he knows everything about music and maybe he'd be your man. So we had lunch and anyway, I got lured into radio and never to quit until I came east some years ago. One of the other pilots produced on forecast was Suspense. Well, Bill, when did uh, Suspense go on the air, and were you involved with it from the very first? I was not involved from the very first. The show was conceived by Charles Vanda, V-A-N-D-A, a very wonderful producer and, and great old friend, in California. And it came about in uh, 1940 as part of a series called Forecast, which CBS put on in the summer as a replacement for the Lux Radio Theater, which used to play 46 weeks a year, but took an eight-week hiatus. And up until then, they had just filled the show with anything that the network could find. But we came up with the idea of using that eight weeks as a, a testing ground, a pilot, it would be called today, a ground for new shows, one of which was Suspense, another was Duffy's Tavern. Several shows were sold and, and went on into uh, getting well-known in radio. Some others fell by the wayside. By 1947, the show's rating had grown to a 15. On Thursday nights at 8 p.m., more people were listening to Suspense on CBS than any other show in the country. I grew up in the tradition of Arthur Conan Doyle and uh, H. Ryder Haggard, if you will, and, and all of the romantic, how will it come out, can she get away by midnight people, rather than the clanking chains of the purely ghost story. Not that suspense doesn't sometimes have an element of horror or that horror doesn't have an element of suspense, but I did not specialize in the clanking chains. On October 30th, 1947, June Havoc guest starred in Subway. 
Suspense. Tonight, Suspense brings you Miss June Havoc as star. But first, may we remind you that... In America's smartest homes and clubs, where fine wines are truly appreciated and enjoyed regularly, the choice is C-R-E-S-T-A, B-L-A-N-C-A, Cresta Blanca, Cresta Blanca. From the finest of the vines come Cresta Blanca California wines, patiently created to please the knowing tongue. Let the proudest name in wine, Cresta Blanca, enrich your daily living. Add luster to your hospitality. Pour Cresta Blanca souvenir sherry or port or any Cresta Blanca wine. There's one for every occasion, for every taste. Shenley's Cresta Blanca Wine Company, Livermore, California. And now, Shenley brings you radio's outstanding theater of thrills, Suspense. Presented by Roma Wines. That's R-O-M-A. Roma Wines of Fresno, California. And starring June Habit in Subway. A suspense play produced, edited, and directed for Shenley by William Spear. The subway always gets me. I have to stand back from the edge of the platform when a train's coming in because... Well, heights don't bother me or close any places... Or any of those other things that give some people the willies? No. No, with me, it's the subway. The shining tracks and the train roaring in out of the black. And I always make myself stand way back when I'm waiting. That's how it started that night. I instinctively drew back when I saw the gleaming white headlight appear in the tunnel, rushing toward me out of the dark. I made myself draw back. But what I really wanted to do was to throw myself in front of that train. The lights on the shining rails hypnotized me like the gleaming eyes of a snake. I stepped backwards in a panic, but that mob, that five o'clock mob poured in behind me and shoved and pulled me with it. I've been pushed around all day, and I, I had this awful cold, and I hated everybody. That's a terrible thing to say, I guess, but that's the way I felt, like committing murder. Oh, I was so tired, so worn out, my feet felt glued to my shoes. And of all the people in the world I didn't want to see, wouldn't that just have to be the night I was shoved right next to Ruth Carney? Paula Stephen, Where have you been keeping yourself? I haven't seen you since the Academy. Hello, Ruth. My favorite actress. What are you doing these days? Oh, nothing. I, I worked in a drugstore for a while. Drugstore? You haven't deserted the theater, have you? I'm afraid I have. You, with all your talent. Ruth, I can't seem to find anything. But you, of all of us... Well, you can't give up. You were so intense about it. Did you try some of stuff? Try? Oh, I tried to get on all right, but... Yes, but... I know. I had to pay for the privilege of appearing in the summer theater. I did the Westport season. Prentice, you know. Oh, it was wonderful fun. And it's well worth it to me to be able to say I'd had professional experience. Well, that's fine. If you can afford it. Oh, it's awful the way you have to have money for everything these days. Yes, it is. 
Oh, don't, don't get too close to me, Ruth. I have the most awful sore throat. I just... And if you don't have money, you have to have Paul, don't you? Oh, and speaking of Paul, have you heard about me? No, I haven't. I'm general understudy for Night Laughter. The producer. John C. Rittner? Yes. Yes, he was an old friend's dad. He used to come over to dinner when I was little. I'd hear them talk about the theater, and I thought there'd be nothing in the world like being an actress. Such fun. All that glamour and all the sensational parties and everybody's so gay. Such fun. And the press... <laughs> Not the acting. Not the thrill of working at something you wanted to do so much that not doing it makes you not want to live. No. Oh, no. It's such fun. And parties. Wearing expensive suits like the one she had on. Ruth chattered on and I looked at her. The subway stopped. More people got on. Still more and more. Seemed as though they'd never stopped getting on. Someone would grab the doors and hold them open and they kept trying to close them. A fat man chewing a horrible cold cigar stub pushed me still closer to Ruth and... I'm sorry. I jumped as something sharp stuck into my side. I was puzzled for a moment. And then I remembered the scissors Mother had asked me to get for her. They were very sharp and they'd ruined my purse. But it didn't make any difference. It was old, like everything else I had. I closed my hand over the scissors and I held them tightly so they wouldn't do any more damage. And then, I don't know why, I found myself staring at Ruth's hat. It was so smart, so expensive, so everything that mine wasn't. I found myself hating Ruth's hat. Well, as I was saying, after Dad died, Mr. Rittner stopped coming over so often. So when I got bored with the academy, I hopped right down to his office and I said, Mr. Rittner, do you remember Henry Connor? Well, I'm his daughter, Ruth. I want to be an actress. Of course, I don't expect big parts right away. But maybe if I could get a walk-on or something. Oh, imagine my nerve, Paula. <laughs> Saying that to a big producer like John C. Rittner. But anyway, that's what I did. And you know what he said to me? No. No, what did he say to you? He said, Ruth, I admire your spunk. And if you're half as good an actress as your father was a set designer, you'll be all right. And he hired me, just like that. And your general understudy. That's me. <laughs> but no one's ever been sick. Confidentially, I'm glad. You're glad? Oh, yes. You see, I've never gotten up in any of the parts like I'm supposed to. If I ever had to go on, actually go on. Oh, I tell you, I get away with murder. Murder? I couldn't look at her face. I didn't even want to look at any of the passengers' faces. And when I raised my eyes, I saw still more faces simpering down at me from advertisements overhead. I hated everybody and everything. I turned and looked outside the windows. The wet, slimy darkness was roaring past like black death. One faulty switch... One obstruction on the tracks could bring it crashing in on all of us. And who'd be the losers? Not Ruth with her silly chatter. Not these other passengers with their tired, blank faces. And not me. Oh, certainly not me. My own tired, blank face was reflected in the window pane, gray and thin. And it didn't seem out of place shimmering in that air of black death just outside. This is a wonderful man, really, Paula. You should meet him. I didn't want to build your hopes up, but I told him about you. About me? Yes. You know, I always did think you had loads of talent. So I told him one day, I told him, Mr. Rittner, 
If anything ever happens to me, I mean, uh, should you decide to give me a real part in your new show, I don't worry about who'll general understudy night laughter. I know just the girl, Paula Stevens. Who's... You told him that? Yes! And if the time ever comes and I have to leave, well, he knows your name and everything. Uh, but don't build up your hopes, honey. He hasn't a part for me in the new show. Oh. And as far as anything happening to make me quit, well, there isn't the slightest chance. Envy and hatred welled up so in me that my throat burned like fire. And the fat man with that cigar was leaning against me, and I lashed out like a drowning person. Hey, watch it, lady, watch it. I, I took it out on him. Who I really wanted to knock out of my way was Ruth. Ruth standing between me and the break I'd dreamed of. Understudy in a hit show. But she had said, Well, don't build up your hopes, honey. There isn't the slightest chance. But wasn't there the slightest chance? I thought, the slightest chance of something happening to her. The train started up again. It jolted me so that I was thrown sickeningly against Ruth. My fingers were testing the points of the scissors in my bag. No one could see me. We were packed in too solidly. The scissors were sharp and cold and long. Yes, they seemed long enough. I kept my eyes on the dim lights and dirty concrete and tiles of the station we sped through as the train throbbed along uptown. I was holding the scissors as though they were a weapon. I was suddenly sure that at some time or another, scissors had been used as a weapon. The scissors in my bag seemed to grow bigger with an idea. Idea and scissors. Scissors and idea. They were increasing in size. The ache in my throat had gone up into my ears, too. Throbbing. Keeping time with the throbbing of the subway. I looked away from the blackness outside and stared up at the white light of the ceiling. The electric fan overhead was suspended like... like a spider. Suspended like a spider. Like the spider that was spinning. No, no, not, not spinning as a spider should spin, but whirling. Yes, that, that was it, whirling. Like my brain was whirling. Sundays, don't you? Oh, yeah. No show tonight, then. Ruth, why don't you come home and eat with me? There's just mother Surprisingly, the next day, Roma Wines announced they were dropping their sponsorship. CBS indicated an alcohol brand would no longer be acceptable for the series. Roma's last sponsored episode was on November 20th, 1947. For the next five weeks, CBS broadcasts suspense on Friday evenings. Suspense! Tonight, as we open a special limited series of five Friday night performances at this hour, suspense brings you an incomparable study in terror. It is Edgar Allan Poe's The Pit and the Pendulum, and a new setting as a radio play especially written for suspense... By a contemporary master of the art, John Dixon Carr. In the fall of 1947, 
Bill Spear was simultaneously going through a divorce with Kay Thompson and an engagement with his new fiancée, June Havoc. And our guest, William Spear, the producer, director, and editor of Suspense. And one of the most charming people who ever appeared on Suspense was your lovely wife, Bill, and we haven't mentioned her at all, and I want her to sit down next to you and chat with us because she certainly is familiar to all of our listeners I know. June Havoc, it is a pleasure to welcome you to this show. Thank you. Let's talk about your radio career, June, and Bill, I want to get you in on this because you certainly work together. Something that I never realized was that June Havoc appeared on any number of your shows and was never given any credit. Now tell me why that was. Maybe June, maybe, maybe you want to... Uh, June, you I better love tell, to tell. Right. I got all the credit in the world. I got taken to dinner every night. <laughs> I got wooed. I got an engagement ring and a wedding ring out of it. So I got plenty out of it. Yes, I got a marvelous man out of it, a brilliant man. And 23 years, he'll say it's 24, don't listen to me. Coming up. <laughs> but it is coming up, 24 years of marriage. Miss Havoc was guest star on Suspense four times between June and November, including the last Rumble Wines show. Beginning on January 3rd, 1948, the program changed directions, shifting to an hour-long format. This is Robert Montgomery. I have a new assignment, and I'm very happy about it. During these 60 minutes each Saturday, I'm to be acting spokesman for one of radio's really great entertainments, a program which is a prime favorite with all of us. You have come to know its opening music as the curtain raiser for radio's outstanding theater of thrills. You know it as a show which each week, for five years, has brought you first-class story material and exciting performances. You have come to recognize throughout the unique touch of our unique producer, my friend, Bill Spear. All of which can be said in one word. Suspense! An hour of suspense now. A full 60 minutes on Saturday night. And with the distinguished actor-director Robert Montgomery as your host. Tonight, Mr. Montgomery William Spears' last date with the production was January 24th with the episode Eve, starring June Havoc. They were married the next day. In those days, as a star, a film actress at the time, what I would do when I did a radio show was you would appear and it would all be very posh and your agent would be standing by and you'd have a special microphone of your very own and then you'd have um, uh, all sorts of marvelous treatment and the really marvelous radio actors would be way over there surrounding one microphone <laughs> and I did that you know whenever one did a radio show and then eventually when I got to know Bill well enough to be asked out and asked for dinner, he was doing suspense and Sam Spade, and he'd say, why don't you sit in the booth with me, and when I'm through doing the show, we'll go and dine. So I sat in the booth long enough to envy those actors. He's a wonderful, wonderful, marvelous director. And so I asked him one night, very, I batted my eyelashes and asked him if he would let me be one of the anonymous actors, because they didn't get billing. They're just marvelous. They're all stars today. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And... Uh, after a while, they did accept me, but it was pretty rough, the producer-director girl sitting in there taking a job from somebody when she didn't need it, you know, and she... But it worked, and I learned a great deal. And I played toothless old hags and Chinese people, and I played myself twice. I was twins once. Really? I murdered myself. It was very difficult. It was a challenge. We have never had this opportunity on the program to ask 
a stage star and a motion picture star, how she adapted to, to radio. Was it difficult for you at first? Yes, it's an entirely different medium. And I originated, as you know, probably on the stage. Frank. And uh, when Frank. I first did my first film Hello. acting, I was Frank. in a... I, in fact, I wasn't really... I've never been very good at it. It's not my medium. And then television is even more difficult. That's not my medium either. I prefer the stage. and It's very simple, isn't it, to hear me say that. Radio was the closest to what I really loved. When the couple finished honeymooning, Spear looked for his next project. He found it on the American Broadcasting Company. Here today and gone tomorrow. Hello, Nikki. Oh, baby. Good to see you. Hey, you're looking... You're looking okay. I... I got regards from you. Uh, from Slade. We... We've been spending a lot of time together. He's a good guy to know, baby. He's smart. Yeah. Well, this is the last time I'll see you, baby. Yeah, I... I know. Take care of yourself after I'm gone. I love you, Nikki. And I love you. Can a guy say goodbye to his wife without some screw listening in? Take it easy, Kane. I don't like it any more than you do. Can you still hear? No. On March 4th, 1948, ABC's production of The Clock was moved to Hollywood and turned over to Bill Spear. Don't you trust me? I'm coming back to you, baby. The Hollywood debut starred Elliot and Kathy Lewis as Nikki and Louise Kane with supporting roles played by Hans Conried, William Conrad, Hi. and Alan Reed. I, I guess this is goodbye. Try not to cry too hard for me, baby. And don't bury me too deep. The series lasted 12 weeks before being canceled. The Robert Montgomery hour-long experiment on suspense ended in May. Autolite signed on as sponsor and beginning with the July 8, 1948 episode. The program moved to Thursdays at 9 p.m. William Spear was back as producer but not director of suspense in 1949. By then he'd begun to heavily lean on Elliot Lewis for acting, writing, and editing. I shall never forget one that on Howard Duff show on Sam Speed that Elliot Lewis made, and Elliot was totally unaware of it, and Lorene Tuttle was totally unaware of it, which was, I'll be up to see you in the morning, and he said, I'll be up you in the morning, and of course the whole audience fell apart. <laughs> And there, Elliot and Lorene were absolutely serene, didn't know what everybody was falling apart about, and Bill Spear was on the floor in the control room. Was a, that's one I remember, very definitely. Broadway's My Beats, with Anthony Ross as Detective Danny Clover. 
Meanwhile in New York, CBS debuted a new detective drama called Broadway is My Beat on February 27, 1949. Broadway is my beat. From Times Square to Columbus Circle. The gorgeous, the most violent, the lonesomest... It starred Anthony Ross and was directed by John Dietz. It's not a street, it's a merry-go-round. Dietz was famous well, for directing Casey Klein photography. man in front of you is thinking about a milkshake or murder. Unfortunately, well, in June, after 15 weeks, Broadway's My Beat was pulled from the air. CBS decided to move production to Hollywood. I always found acting boring, because there's not enough to do. You do it, and then you're finished, and now what are you going to do, you know? They would go back to the office to do rewrites and changes and all that kind of stuff. So I would go into the booth and listen when I wasn't on in the scene, and then I'd go back to the office, and they'd let me sit there with them when they were doing rewrites and cuts. So I got interested in all of it, and when I started working on suspense, Spear asked me, because I was writing suspense in addition to acting on it, I wrote some of them, and I edited a great many of them. And Spear had to go away and he asked me if I wanted to direct it, and I said, yeah, sure. So I directed one, and then the CBS people wanted to do... Broadway's My Beat, which had been on in the East. They wanted to move it out here, and they needed a producer-director. Mort Fine, David Friedkin were going to write it, and we cooked up the idea of scoring it with a jazz orchestra and got Sandy Courage for that. I, all of a sudden, Lewis would direct, and Morton Fine and David Friedkin would write. Broadway's My Beat is the first series you wrote regularly. Was it your idea or your and David's no, idea? No, as a matter of fact, it had been done before David and I got hold of it. It was done out in New York. And the Mavens in New York felt that whoever was writing it in New York was not capturing the flavor of New York, so they brought it to Hollywood, where two <laughs> other writers caught the flavor, allegedly, of New York by so, sitting down in Hollywood and writing. The repackaged Broadway is My Beat debuted as a summer replacement for the FBI in Peace and War on Thursday, July 7th, 1949. Broadway's My Beat. From Times Square to Columbus Circle. The gaudiest, the most violent, the lonesomest mile in the world. Broadway's My Beat. With Larry Thor as Detective Danny Cole. Broadway, where a pale and hungry girl walks like a queen because Broadway's a dream street. Where a fat man stands with begging eyes because he knows his dreams will never come true. It's a cry or a laugh, but nothing in between. Either way, it's my beat. On special detail, there are no special hours. Don was at the window of my office at police headquarters when I scribbled my last report. An out-of-town school teacher was trying to beat the heat by using Columbus Circle for a burlesque runway. <laughs> I buried that one behind a convenient fan. Bid the boys a fond bonjour and started home out the side entrance. I didn't make it. All I saw of sunrise was Although no sponsorship was forthcoming, CBS Brass was impressed with Elliot Lewis's capabilities. At the end of August in 1950, William Spear was set to leave suspense once again.
This time, he had his replacement in mind. Autolite and its 96,000 dealers present Suspense. Tonight, Autolite brings you a story of treachery and greed. A story we call Murder in G-Flat, starring Mr. Jack Benny. Bill Spear, who was producing and directing Suspense and was, to my mind, probably the greatest of... I wrote scripts for him, and then he had me editing scripts all this while I was acting, and then uh, we got very close. We had a good relationship, and he wasn't well for a while, and he asked if I would produce and direct Suspense for him, and I did some. Then he had to go to Europe to do a picture with June and the Masons, James and Pamela, were married at that time. And Pamela had written a book, done the adaptation, and James and June were going to co-star, and Bill was going to produce and direct it. And that meant that he'd have to give up suspense. And he, in a very dramatic scene, handed me the torch and said, you go do this, I'm going to go do pictures. And I said, fine, off you go. And he said, and also take care of Howard and Sam Spade for me while I'm gone. One of Bill Spears' principles that Elliot Lewis expanded upon was casting comedic performers in dramatic roles. One person to take on the challenge was radio's most famous comedian, Jack Benny. Benny guest starred on the April 5th, 1951 episode called Murder in G-Flat. Murder in G-Flat and the transcribed performance of Mr. Jack Benny, Autolite hopes once again to keep you in suspense. A lieutenant in here, sir, in the rec hall. What's he doing in the rec hall? Well, he thought he'd tune the piano while I was waiting, lieutenant. Sunday night. Why couldn't you guys pick a better night than Sunday night? My one day off, and I have to come down Sorry here. we had to call you, Joe. This is the guy, huh? Yeah. Hey, you. That's it. C flat. If I had my wrench... This and... is the lieutenant... Oh. Oh, I'm sorry, Lieutenant. I Same. Was... Oh. My name is Remington. Hercules Remington. That's it, Joe. We checked. Huh. Uh, pardon me, Lieutenant, but my wife, Martha, is going to be awfully worried. You see, I haven't seen her since this morning. They told you me You haven't that... seen your wife since this morning? No, and I thought that if I could phone her and at least tell her where I am... Where'd you pick him up? Coney Island, Joe. He called us from there. Yes, and I should have called my wife, too. Look, Lieutenant, I don't want to seem persistent about this. You'll have this, plenty but... of time later to call your wife. Now, give the Lieutenant the story in detail, just like you told it to me on the way down here to the station. What kind of work do you do, Remington? Well, I- I'm a-, a piano tuner, Lieutenant. Yours is out of tune. I... C-flat, Lieutenant. See, if I could get my bag, I- I'd tune Look, Remington, this. I haven't got all night. Now, either get on with your story or I'll have... All right, Lieutenant. But... But I really would like to call my wife first. Start your story. All right, all right. But if there's any explaining to be done to my wife, uh, you guys will have to do it. We'll be happy to. Now, go ahead. Yes, sir. Well, Lieutenant, this whole mess started yesterday morning, Saturday. I got up, had breakfast with my wife, Martha, and my Uncle Herman. He's my black sheep uncle of the family. He's a carnival man, came to work at the World's Fair here, and has been living with us ever since. I think he ought to pay at least one-third of the rent, but Martha, well, she feels sorry for him. 
Anyway, I left the house around 10 o'clock on my way to the Lippenridge School of Music. I usually tune their pianos on the first Saturday of the month. You see, because there aren't any classes there on that Saturday. I catch the BMT at 57th and get off at Union Square. Well, yesterday morning, I got on the subway, just like I always do. I carry a little ordinary brown bag with all my tools in it and usually lay it right next to me under the seat. I was just sitting there, thinking hard, wondering how I was going to meet the bills at the end of the month when a man sat down next to me. He shoved something under the seat and just sat there staring ahead. B-flat, 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 B-flat. I beg your pardon. Oh, 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 I'm sorry. I guess I got carried away for a moment. Four stops later, the man got up, reached under the seat, pulled out a little brown bag, and started for the door. I remember noticing he was bald-headed and wearing big black horn-rimmed glasses. For a minute, I thought he'd stolen my bag of tools, but I reached my hand under the seat and found my bag was still there. I remember sort of chuckling to myself, thinking of the coincidence that he'd been carrying the same type of bag. Well, anyway, I got off at Union Square and walked up to the Lippenridge School of Music on 14th. There are four floors there, you know, a piano on each floor. And I usually start at the top and work my way down. Well, since the school doesn't have any classes on Saturday, the, the place was deserted. Hmm, that one's sour. Yeah, D-flat. I'll soon have that in shape. What the... I zipped open my bag to take out my tuning hammer and my wedges, but... but there were no tools in my bag. The tools were gone, and in their place were bundles and bundles of crisp $10 bills. And then it hit me. The little ball-headed man on the subway. The man who sat down next to me. This bag belonged to him. He picked up mine by mistake. There was no name on the bag, no identification of any kind. I started counting one of the bundles. Each bundle contained $1,000 in $10 bills, and there were 25 bundles. I had just come heir to $25,000. You see, in radio, you could visualize everything yourself, like my vault scenes were easier to do on radio than in television. Now, the reason my character sustained over so many years, like you say, how could things go on and on? Well, because I played a character that included all the faults and the frailties of mankind. Listen to me, both of you. I, I'm rich. Oh, for heaven's sakes, Hercules, act your age. I, I'm not lying to you. <clears throat> Look, I gotta well, get out to... you must be sick. Look, will both of you be quiet for just a minute? Sounds like he's drunk. Are you sick, Hercules? Look, I, I'm not sick and I'm not drunk. I've got it right here. You've got what? Look. Wow. Hercules. Now do you believe me? Now do you believe I'm not sick or drunk? Look at it. 
That's a lot of money. Hercules. Hercules, where'd you get all this money? I found it. Found it? Found it? Yes. I... Uh, Listen to well, me, Hercules Remington. Don't you lie to me. Another staple of a Lewis production was his casting of actors from other Lewis productions in supporting roles. For, for example, this episode of Suspense featured Larry Thor and Jack Crucian as policemen. If I tell you the truth, I, I know you won't believe Well, tell me anyway. Well, all right. Look at this morning, I got on the subway, just like I always do. And some little bald-headed man with black horn-rimmed glasses sat down next to me. When he got up to get off the subway, I noticed he was carrying a brown bag, just like mine. At first, I thought it was mine. But mine was still under the seat. Anyway, when I got to the music school, I opened my bag, and, and all this money was in it. Mm. Sounds fantastic. Hercules. But it's the truth. The little man picked up my bag by mistake. I searched this one for some identification, but there isn't any. Then... Then you mean the little bald-headed man has your bag with the tools in it? I guess he does. Uh, it seems odd that anyone would be carrying this much money around in a little brown bag. Odd or not, the fact still remains that I didn't steal it. Well, I guess there isn't any way that you could get a hold of this man, so... We'll just have to turn the money over to the police. The... The police? Yes, I said the police. But... But why? Why? Good heavens, Hercules, you don't expect to keep this money. Why not? Which isn't ours. Why? Why isn't it ours? I found it. I didn't steal it, Martha. Hercules! Martha, don't you see? Maybe this is fate. Maybe we were meant to have this money. Maybe if You're just... crazy! You're out of your head! You... You're talking like a madman, and I won't have it. But, Martha... But you didn't come by this money, honestly. It isn't legally yours. Uh, now, wait a minute, Martha. Maybe Hercules is Now, you stay bit... out of this, Uncle Herman. Hercules, you're going to take this money to the police. No. No, I'm not. I'm not going to take this to the police or anyone else. Do you understand me? I'm not going to take this money to the police. Hercules, I don't understand you at all. But mark my words, you'll pay for this. Well, don't uh, pay no attention to her, nephew. But why does she have to be that way? Why can't she understand me just this once? Why can't she see my side of it? See, I didn't steal this money. No, you didn't, nephew. Then I'm going to keep it. Sure you are, nephew. Sure you are. You're going to keep it. You bet I am. Jack was the best teacher in the world. I was still in school the first time I worked for Jack. And I got a job on a Benny show. The sketch was that Benny was moving, and in the script were two moving men named Mervyn and Laverne. And I was to be one of the moving men, a big dummy. And it really went very, very well. I was very pleased and, of course, honored to be there. And Jack was very, very sweet to me, and he wrote me a note, and he sent me an extra check. By October 25th, 1952... Broadway is My Beat was airing on Saturdays at 7 p.m. The program was unsponsored, and all production costs were sustained by CBS. That evening, the show presented the Mary Trevor murder case. Broadway's My Beat, from Times Square to Columbus Circle, the gaudiest, the most violent, the lonesomest mile in the world. 
Broadway's My Beat with Larry Thor as Detective Danny Clover. The wind of October begins its departure from Broadway, scatters the brown leaves of regret before it, piles them high at this corner and that, and the mob turns up its coat collar, drifts the autumn street and looks for a friend, looks, sees only the two-hour dream promised by the theater marquee, sees warmth on the other side of the plate glass windows, and sees this, the girl with the soft fur held close to her throat, covering her face right up to her eyes, and where she was is chillness. That was October. Image and farewell. Get moving, kid. And an evening above it, the place of no seasons, hospital corridor, where I was, and Detective Muggerman. What about it, Danny? Is she going to live? Dr. Sinsky doesn't know. At least he says he doesn't know. He knows. A girl stabbed like that, she hasn't got a chance. Uh, mind if we sit down here on this bench and smoke? Oh. Just run it down for me, Muggerman. The subway guard, Times Square, said it was 10 o'clock, give or take a couple of seconds, that he heard a scream. Local train had stopped, people getting on and off, rush, you know. So a girl screamed. Do you think the people stopped rushing to see what was the matter? No, they kept right Come on. Come on, Muggerman, just tell me. The guard battled his way through to where the girl screamed. She had a knife in her. Yeah. Couldn't tell if she'd been on the train and was getting off or what. It called emergency ambulance, got her here about half an hour ago. No witnesses, huh? Oh, the usual crop. Each with a story of the way they figured it happened. Nothing. Identification? Lots of that. Wallet, usual stuff. Oh, here, wait a minute. Here. Yeah. I wrote it down for you. Uh, Mary Trevor, 1212 West 37th. What else? She was carrying an overnight bag, Danny. Been away or was going away for a day to nightgown, underthings, slippers. You know the stuff. A novel to read, a couple of women's magazines. She had a nice vacation, huh? Information. Talk about Mary Trevor. Morning. Flop yourself anywhere, mister. You'll excuse how I am. I was in the tub with a warm bath, reading the paper and listening to the radio. Tough day today. The warm tub relaxes me. Music likewise. I see. Yeah, sure you see. So, okay, so now you killed it for me. What's with Mary? She's in police emergency hospital. She's dying. Mary got hurt? Hit by a car, what? Someone tried to kill her. Mary? She's on a subway platform in Times Square. Someone stabbed her, ran. We found this address on her. You found this address on her because this is where she lives sometimes. This is her home sometimes. Sometimes she remembers I'm a father. Those are the times when she yawns, asks me how things are going while I work, goes to sleep in her room. I could count the times on the fingers of my hands. Tell me about her, Mr. Trevor. What do I know about her? This is her private hotel, these three rooms. I'm not her father. I'm her desk clerk, her bellboy. I take messages for her. Send out a cleaning press and wrestle up night snacks for her. And you know what? No. She leaves tips for me on my dresser when she goes out. (laughs) 
Yeah, five, a ten spot. You know something else? I take it. I use it for get-loaded money, forget money. <laughs> but I get more Father's Days than any father in the world. Someone tried to kill her, Mr. Trevor. Maybe you could... Don't tell... ask me too much about Mary. I don't know about her life, so I wouldn't know about her dying. Well, her friends, people she ran around with, men, girlfriends... Doesn't get through to you, huh? Unbelievable, huh? Well, I'll lay it out for you. This girl stopped being my child maybe five years ago. After that, we couldn't find anything in common. We get lost in different worlds. She had a bag with her when we found her. Traveling bag. She ran in here a couple of nights ago, said she was in a big hurry, threw her things in a bag, told me she was going out of town not to wait up. Don't question me where, mister, because I knew better than to ask her. You said she left money for you, fives and tens. She must have a good job. <laughs> you could call it a job if you want. Now tell me about it. Mary's got a rich friend, rich girlfriend. My Mary does things for like sponge, I think the word is. That's the word, sponge. You know who she is, where she lives? Joan Hunt, Park Avenue. I checked once, found it in the phone book. Mary wasn't lying. There was such a girlfriend. Now, you do something for me, mister. The address where my kid's dying, I want to go to her. Maybe now I can get through to her. So leave there, out into the street. And the street is filled with the near-midnight silences and pockets of yellow of the street lamps. Night Street, a zone of almost black and a few swift, ebbing figures. And the sudden dart of car and the faraway lights where other people's laughter is. So go to the apartment now, to the few intimate things among the furnishings that come with the rent. And this is home and sleep. The morning comes suddenly. It screams at you. Open your eyes and it blinds you. Morning happens every day. And some morning years from now, you'll be used to it. Up now, the shave, the shower, the coffee, the street, work to do. Call headquarters and give Detective Muggerman my route for the day. First stop, Park Avenue. This morning's Park Avenue maid wears gray silk and white collar. And her curtsy is not much at all, but her smile is. Takes your name to her mistress, Joan Hunt. Comes back, takes you, leaves. And Joan Hunt is in tailored slacks and tailored blouse. And her makeup is color geometry applied to the precise planes and arcs and ovals of her face. She sits erect and attentive. And the chrome of her wheelchair gleams circularly. Good morning. Good morning. Have you had coffee? Yes, thank you. It's about Mary Trevor. Yes? She's dying. That's a shame. It happened on a subway. She was stabbed. And? Miss Hunt. Yes? The police are interested in finding out who did it. You must know I realize that. I saw Miss Trevor's father last night. He told me there was sort of relationship between you two. Precisely what? He said his daughter sponged off you. She did. I'm sorry, Miss Hunt. Like this, Mr. Clover. I was injured some years ago. It was a ski jump. Since then, there have been friends, boys, girls. They come to read to me, one after another. And we discuss. That's my life now, you know. I sit here and I discuss with whoever is current. Let me put it this way. I support whoever is current. It's all very smilingly brave and gay, but I pay for it. And the latest one, Mary Trevor. 
This afternoon, when the news gets out, my doorbell will ring and there'll be someone else. No college chum, friend I haven't seen in years. Someone who's been here to a party last week. Someone. I see. Perhaps I can help you, Mr. Clover. I've uh, something of a story which may or may not attend what has happened. I'd like to hear it. Monday, Mary left with my fiancé. Oh, not the obvious, Mr. Clover. I'm much too rich for anything like my fiancé's running off with someone else. But what his name, won't you? Robert Gray. Go on. They left for Lake Champlain Monday. They and another couple, a Mr. and Mrs. Nelson, to fix up my lodge, our honeymoon cottage. Shall I tell you about that? Yes. It has 20 rooms, four of which have been closed off to give the atmosphere of roughing it. It's near a small town with a stupid name, Rouse's Point, near the border. I will permit a honeymoon there, and I shall come back to this house and never leave it. Have you seen your fiancé? Neither or... him nor the Nelson since Monday. Merely phone calls late yesterday that they were in town. Now, what else do you want? The Nelson's address and Robert Gray's address. I'll get them for you. And then, if you don't mind, will you please leave? Whatever it is you want of me, make it brief, hmm? Let's not make a crease of it. Crease, that crisis in case you don't know. Flint. I didn't know. Huh. You stated it simply enough. Mary Trevor is dying, you said, of knife wounds. And what do you want of me? Just this, Mr. Gray. Did you try to kill her? No. <laughs> no, I wouldn't, you see. Tell me about it. I wouldn't, you see, because once I loved Mary Trevor. And now you don't, and suddenly she's knifed on a subway platform. Tell me when you stopped loving her, Mr. Gray. I could tell you the precise moment. Do that. Less than a month ago, I sat in a bistro in Paris. On the table before me was an aperitif, amber in color, and my visitor's visa to America. I sat and sipped, and I culled through half-forgotten memories. High among them was Mary Trevor. You said a visitor's visa. Exactly. Thirty days have I in the country of my birth. Here, I'll show you. My papers, the visa, my birth certificate, my passport. French passport, as you see, because I'm a French citizen. Well, look at them. It happened to me what they say in the travel folders. I saw Paris, I tasted of Paris, I went on my knees to her, begged for citizenship. Got it. What brought you back, Mr. Graham? A longing. In Paris, I lived on small articles to the Tribune about American tourist behavior and customs abroad. Now, here I shall live on small articles to the Paris Tribune. Behavior and customs of the Americans at home. Until you marry Joan Hunt, that is. You asked for the moment when I fell out of love with Mary Trevor. I called her when I arrived. We had cocktails and old remembrances. And then she took me to Joan to display me. I saw Joan. At that precise moment, I loved Joan and no longer Mary. Miss Hunt is very rich. Miss Hunt is helpless and lonely and crippled, and I love her, and I'm going to marry her. Touche, Mr. Clover? 
You went to Miss Hunt's lodge with Mary. To prepare Jones and my place of honeymoon, clean it up with Mary and with Dickie and Lucy Nelson. Very proper. Very carnal foe. Dickie and Lucy are giddy idiots, but they're respectable folk. As was Marion. As was I. When did you see her last? When my cab dropped the Nelsons off at their apartment. Then Mary off at a subway station uptown. I kissed Mary's forehead, and our forever parting was graceful. Now, if you... Never mind, Mr. Gray. I'll get it. Hello? That you, Danny? Yeah, Michaelman, what do you want? I'm here at the hospital with Mary Trevor, Danny. She's trying to say something. She wants to talk to Robert Gray. All right, write down what she says. I'll get Gray. It's for you, Mr. Gray. Who? Mary Trevor. She wants to talk to you. You going to take the call, Mr. Gray? Yes. Yes, I am. Mary? It's me. It's Robert. I'm deeply sorry about... Mary? Mary! Playful joke, Mr. Clover. There's no one there. Give me the phone. Hello? Hello, Mugovan. Yeah, Danny. Give Mr. Gray the message. Tell him Mary Trevor couldn't say a word to him. She just died. Jack Crucian co-starred as Sergeant Mugovan. My start was at CBS Radio here in Hollywood, doing a sustaining show, we used to call those. It meant you didn't... That's right. Sponsored, right? right. Non-sponsored. Yeah. It also meant you didn't get paid in those days. Oh, really? $3? No. 1938? Oh, I got gore. And, <laughs> and it was 13 weeks. A wonderful experience because I got to play a different foreign character every week. And at the age of 16, that was pretty exciting. How about that? That's pretty, this kid here, are you kidding? She was a baby. Yeah. I was, at least, I was a graduate of high school. This episode featured Byron Kane and Betty Lou Gerson. I have uh, what you call a theatrical trained voice, which sounds a little English, a little Southern. And Tallulah Bankhead came from Jasper, Alabama, and so she had Southern with a little of this. Anyway, I had a cold once on Lux, a very, very bad cold, and when I get a cold, my voice goes deeper and deeper and deeper. And this was the one that was starring Tallulah. And I had the first line, and she looked up at the director, Fred Mackay, and she said, Darling, you have got to be kidding. (laughs) (laughs) At that point, I said, Oh, this is the easiest money I ever had, and I left and was paid, you know. <laughs> I thought it was very amusing. I've been mistaken for her and Katherine Hepburn and everybody. Despite applause for the series from within CBS, Broadway is My Beat was unable to find sponsorship in an era where ratings were key to long-term success. You were asking something? Sir? In the 40s, was there as much concern for the ratings as there is now? Oh, you bet there was. Good. Godfrey Nielsen and Hooper and Nielsen. That was before, I think, Crosley, or maybe not. But it certainly was. There was concern. And as a matter of fact, my deceased husband did those Websters, and it was a well-known fact that those Websters beat every week Ozzie and Harriet. First Nighter ran some of the top, top, comedies straight into another evening when they were on Friday evenings. No one could top them, and no one could top those Websters. The best Hollywood talent got most of the parts. I overslept one morning, and rehearsal was going on. And we lived, now this, I was in Chicago, and it was the near north side, 
And uh, the producer called and said, where, my God, where are you? And I said, oh, you know, I don't know why I didn't have a service to, to wake me up or something. But I dressed in the cab. And I got there, and they handed me the script, and I did it cold just as we went on the air. That was about the closest call. But I went in my nightie, you know, grabbing my clothes and dressing in the cab, and I said, just don't look, get me to the, I think it was CBS, which wasn't too far away from my apartment. Elliot Lewis was now directing two shows and also acting in the Phil Harrison Alice Faye show. In 1953, he would add two more shows to his plate. How busy were you at your busiest as far as being? Of course, I you, think you I had counted one mix. week I did 20 shows mm. in one capacity or another. I was finally, in the late 50s, or middle 50s, I guess, I was involved in the production, direction, acting, whatever, on five weekly series. My desk at CBS looked like a joke. I was doing the Harris Show as an actor. I was producing and directing suspense. I was producing, directing, editing, writing openings and closings, and co-starring on stage. I was producing and directing Broadway's my beat, and I was producing, directing, and writing the openings and closings and editing crime classics. And at one point, CBS had three of those shows on back-to-back on Wednesday night. And by taping parts of this one and sections of that one, because you couldn't record the music, music had to be live and had to be put in when you went on the air, and having adjoining studios, one and two, with the old CBS, I was able to do it. I was on the air. I had a show on the air from 5.30 to 6. I had a show on the air from 6 to 6.30. And I had a show on the air from 6.30 to 7. I mean, to network feed, some of them. Uh, it was Elliot Lewis night on CBS. Yeah, it was ridiculous. You know, there's no reason for that. It was just silly. But that's just the way the, the scheduling happened. Transcribed. Kathy and Elliot Lewis on stage. On Thursday, January 1st, 1953, 8.30 p.m., Kathy and Elliot Lewis debuted a new dramatic anthology program. It was called On Stage. Kathy Lewis, Elliot Lewis, two of the most distinguished names in radio, opening tonight in their own theater, starring in a repertory of stories of their own and your choosing. Radio's foremost players in radio's foremost plays. Drama, comedy, adventure, mystery, melodrama. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Elliot Lewis. Good evening. May I present my wife, Kathy? Good evening. Tonight is our opening night, and tonight is the first day of the new year, so we're going to do a comedy for you to start our new series. Something like a spray of confetti to go with the season. A story about a young man and his wife in 1953. Nice people. Not rich, not poor. Happy with each other, you know. Nice. So tonight we present String Bow Tie by Morton Fine and David Friedkin. My name in the play is Gerson Hapsmith. And I'm Laurie Hapsmith. And we're married and we live in New York. The opening scene has to do with Lori. She's got a seat on the 7th Avenue subway. It's New Year's Eve afternoon and she's on her way home from work. At the moment, she's upset because the seated man next to her is working the crossword puzzle and doesn't know the three-letter word for the web-footed diving bird of the Arctic Sea. Lori knows. Auk. Hmm? Sixteen down. It's Auk. A-U-K. Now extinct. It's very cold in the Arctic. Here's the paper. You work it out. Yes, thank you. Bye. That's Laurie. 
easy to get along with, even on a subway where people are pretty tough to get along with. To make a point out of it, Laurie, in a way she knows, makes herself smaller so that very large woman will have ample room on the seat. You crowded, dear? No, not at all. Do you have a pencil? Oh, sure. Sure, dearie. Wait, I'll find it. Somewhere. Got it here someplace in my purse. Oh, here. Thank you. I like to work crossword puzzles on my way home. Awk. Thanks. They're extinct now, dearie. Yes, I know. Sowie. Which one, honey? Across or down? Up there on the advertisement. Where? See, the one between the termite service and the cheese crackers. Zowie. Oh, you mean the picture of the man in the string bow tie sitting at the piano? Schizo. A man's cologne to quicken the pulse of women. Oh, you know something? What? I understand perfectly the emotions of those four women seated at his feet. Oh, look at that man. Uh, dearie. Uh-huh. Uh, let me know when we get to Times Square. Yesterday I ended up in Bronx Park just staring at him. That fellow's a real beauty. You really think so, huh? Just me? Well, you're all over town. Ladies standing around staring, admiring. Oh, no wonder. The way he sits there at the piano. Hands poised over who knows what strange melody. The grace of that fellow. The passion He's of... my husband. Down to his fingertips. Smoldering. Written all over him. He's my husband. Ah. Honest. Uh, what's his name? Gerson. Gerson. <sighs> Gerson what? Gerson Hapsmith. Dearie. What? Let me ask you something. No. Zowie. Honey, this is Times Square. Who needs it? I've got a little shopping to do in Bronx Park. On stage came just as the big money was leaving the industry. Agencies and producers still had radio budgets. And there was still a need for programming, because radio still had an audience. I'm home, Gerson. Oh, hi. What are you doing? To get the show off the ground, Elliot Lewis tabbed some of the best writers in radio, like Morton Fine, David Freakin, and E. Jack Newman. Kathy and Elliot would star in every play. When you play a part like Frankie Grimley, I listen to some of your portrayals on suspense, and you, you go from, in, within one week, playing a, a real psychotic, psychopathic character to playing Frankie Grimley. How do you do that? I mean, that's... <laughs> I'm thinking, I think, of a real loser you played on a show with Judy Garland. You remember the show Drive-In? Oh, yeah. Um, where you take her out on the hills overlooking the city and uh, try to kill her with a knife. She in love with the guy, doesn't she? Well, I think the way it works is she's a car hop. Yeah. And uh, you've just come from killing somebody. I, 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 I hold her hostage. Yeah, you, she, she sees the blood in the car or something yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I sure don't. I'd have to. I have to go back and listen to the credits. But, but uh, you know, you don't get much farther from uh, Frankie Rimley than than a show like that. Well, I remember a Sunday. Remember John Nesbitt's passing parade? Oh sure. Well, we used to do the Benny show from that 
studio on Melrose that I described, from 4 to 4.30 to the east. And Nesbitt's passing parade was at CBS, which is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight and a half blocks away. From 4.30 to 5. I was on both shows one week. It never occurred to me that my car wouldn't start, that I might have an accident, that I, in one script, had a, had a part where I was playing the mully, and I was going to drive during closing commercial, system cue, and opening commercial on the Nesbitt show to CBS to walk in and play Dr. Semmelweis, the man who discovered and cured childbed fever. Never occurred to me that there was a problem, that there might be a problem, that it was impossible. When you're young and stupid, you can do almost anything. <laughs> you know, it, something is only dangerous and and uh, foolhardy and could be difficult if you have the brains to know it. If you don't know it, you just go ahead and do it. So I suppose uh, when I was doing Ramley, I was doing Ramley. You do Ramley and... When I picked up the script on suspense to work with Judy, then I'm playing that kind of a guy. You know. Yeah, there's a seat. Come on. <laughs> oh. oh, I don't know why, Gerson, just to go out on New Year's Eve. Everything is so wonderful, even a crowded subway. I want to tell you something. What? Here we are, 12 feet underground. That figures. There's two of us. Uh, no, I mean, here we are, you and I... Rushing around in a subway and a crowd of people. It's and... not crowded down the other end of the car, Gerson. Why did you have to pick a seat right under your picture? Well, let me finish, will you? Sorry. Crowd of people, and I feel like we're alone, Laurie. Hurtling through space alone. Pardon me, please. Could I just squeeze in here, please? Well, here, I'll get up. <laughs> oh, no, you don't. You just sit there. I'll squeeze in between you. Mm-hmm. You mind scooching over a little, madam? Mm. <laughs> there we are. Gerson? I'm over here, Laurie. Mm-hmm. Mister... Yeah? Your skirts, though, aren't you? <laughs> when you got on, I told my girlfriend Janice, their skirts are the man in the string bow tie. <laughs> and Janice said to me, she said, every time you get on the subway, you start dreaming. Oh, really? <laughs> Janice! Janice! It's him! <laughs> Wave to Janice. Yes, all right. Hi, Janice. <laughs> Young lady. Listen, madam, you've had him since 23rd Street. Don't be a hog. I'm going to feel silly saying it, but I'm going to say it. This man is mine. Ha, 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 ha. Put your money where your mouth is, madam. Ask him. Hey, Scherzo, are you hurt? She's my wife. Well, if she is your wife, pray tell, who are those four girls on the advertisement who are scattered beneath your piano? Well, they're models, that's all. Just girls. Well, that's all I am. Honest. Young lady. Yes, madam. Beat it. Blow. Go tell Janice she wants you. Look, madam. You might be married to him and all, but I'd like to explain the facts of life to you. The minute he got up in that advertisement, he belonged to humanity, female type. <laughs> Can I fix your bow tie, Sketcher? Uh, yes, go right ahead. Here's where we get off, Gerson. No, the lady just wanted... You belong to humanity, Gerson, and they're waiting for you up there. Let's hurry before the door slams in your face. <laughs> Many episodes are superb examples of radio's growth as an artistic medium after World War II. This debut was a comedy thriller called The String Bow Tie. Unfortunately, by the 1953-54 radio season, 
Hollywood productions were shifting to TV or being canceled. Radio's ratings had plummeted. On stage failed to attract much of an audience. It was canceled after the September 30th, 1954 broadcast. It occurred to me years later how many shows we did and what kind of writing we had and the kind of chances that we took. I still can't believe we did it. I suppose if I were given the opportunity, I'd do the same thing again. It seems to me that that's the kind of... If you're going to do an anthology, which that was, that's the kind of anthology to do. You do a little bit of everything. You take all kinds of chances. Remember the one we did called Conrad in Quest of His Youth? There was a magnificent show. Fred Steiner did music for it. Just lovely, lovely love story. Ejack wrote, I don't know what, a dozen fantastic original stories. Shirley Gordon did such good stuff. She did a thing called Call Me a Cab. Yeah. Remember that? Yeah. She did a lot of good stuff. Are you new to old-time radio? A hardcore fan? Curious, but don't know where to start? Try the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, a podcast dedicated to the great horror, crime, and suspense shows from the golden age of radio, including tales from Suspense, Lights Out, Quiet Please, The Shadow, and more. Each episode features a classic or maybe not-so-classic story from the old-time radio vault, complete with historical notes and trivia. At the end of each podcast, your mysterious old hosts, Tim, Joshua, and Eric, discuss the merits of the story and decide whether or not it stands the test of time, balancing insight and humor to make you think harder about what made these old shows so great, even when they aren't so great. The Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society is available everywhere you get your podcasts, as long as you get your podcast from iTunes or Podbean. For more information about the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, or to download episodes directly, visit ghoulishdelights.com. And now back to Breaking Walls. New York radio back then probably was a little bit more flexible because they were trying to borrow people from the theater from the stage, you know, when they could. But I'm only guessing as to why it was different. I had no difficulty getting into commercial radio in New York because it was never an option. I was dragged across, still in uniform, hmm. from Air Force radio to civilian radio, still doing both, you know, doing military and civilian shows in the same day, in the same week, still in uniform, waiting for points to pile up, the war long over. Because, as it happened, my immediate superior in the Air Force, Radio Propaganda Unit Number 1, was in commercial radio, had been in commercial radio. We had been at school together in New Haven. We had done broadcasts together before the war on the Yankee Network in New Haven, Connecticut, with him playing the piano and me reading words. And then I found him... Uh, as my director producer, he was a captain, and I was closest they could get me to civilian. They kept on tearing stripes off my sleeves as fast as I could sew them up. <laughs> and uh, we went right across from Air Force Radio to the Carrington Playhouse. 
Elaine Carrington was the queen of soap opera writers in daytime soaps and had gotten a nighttime hour-long melodrama that would have been the radio equivalent of Dallas. And we had it on the air, I think it was CBS. And all of us who were in uniform were in there doing the Carrington Playhouse. So I never had any difficulty cracking New York radio. And now, Backstage Wife, a story of Mary Noble and what it means to be the wife of a famous star. After a desperate struggle with her own peace of mind, Mary Noble has finally dashed out of her hotel just off Broadway in New York and is hurrying toward the Pennsylvania station where she's half hoping, half dreading to find a man named Victor, a thoroughly despicable character who has long worked for wealthy Rupert Barlow and who has told Mary he has important information he can give her relating to her husband Larry in his trial for the murder of Oliver Wilson. On this off chance, Mary is now leading her taxi down the long tunnel at the Pennsylvania station. And as she hurries into the crowded building, she thinks... I've got to find the waiting room. I think it's over on this side. Oh, yes, there's the sign. But it's so late, he won't be here. I, I just know he won't. And probably that's just as well. Friend Ward Marlow warned me not to come here. Not to have anything to do with Victor. She said it would be just another trick. But it's possible he does know something about that awful night Oliver Wilson was murdered. He was backstage at the theater. And if he could say anything to shift the blame from Larry... The station is such a big place. How can I possibly tell if Victor is here? I'd better walk all through this waiting room from one door to another. But as Mary searches frantically for the sinister face of Victor, we find him leading the station through the front, taking the escalator up and into the long corridor leading to 7th Avenue. And thinking... So Mary Noble didn't have the nerve to meet me. Very shortly, the radio business emerged at a place where knowledge and quickness was very important to the director. He didn't have time to stop and teach a guy how to read a line or, or what to do because you were always fighting a, a time thing. I was in at the beginning and gotten the experience, and by the time radio started to get really big, I was there and working well, you, like you mad. You were quite versatile, and you were able to do all different kinds of voices, and that must well, have been valuable before the, uh, yes. the union days when you could double and triple and all that. True, true, true. I'm one of the founders of the union. I don't know uh -huh. if you knew that. No. There were three of us, George Heller and John Brown and myself, and belonged to the Forum in Equity. We sat down and we started talking of the needs for a union. By this time, there were a lot of people working. In radio, from the beginning to the end, there was like a hierarchy. 90% of the work was done by 10% of the people. And of that 10% of the people, maybe 10% of them were always going, you know? It was, it was that. And it was due to the early start and friendships that were formed and uh, knowledge of the business. Everybody uh, threw his hand in in those days in many varying things. For instance, I was on one of the phones at CBS where we were working mostly then, when Orson Welles had his War of the Worlds thing and everybody was at a phone. You don't have to put on an act to fool me. It's a little late for that. Not that I don't appreciate your stringing along until after my trial, Mary. 
Instead of turning me down publicly, as you might have done. How can you say such a thing? Alan Reed, whom you just heard, got his start in New York acting on many soap operas before moving to California in 1943. I think we both know the truth pretty well by now. By the early 1950s, most of the afternoon soap operas were originating from New York. You know that. Oh, sure, I know that. You wouldn't go against my slightest wish. One of the most famous was Backstage Wife, which on January 15, 1951, was being heard on NBC at 4.15 p.m. for Procter and Gamble. I'm telling you that I've never loved or been interested in Rupert except as a friend. Someone to help us through this terrible... Heroine Mary Noble was an Iowa girl who came to the big city and married into the theater. Although her husband and friends got all of the public's attention, she lived in the wings, seeing all and trying to help. Claire Neeson starred. Guy Sorrell played husband Larry Noble, the matinee idol of millions. The supporting cast was comprised of radio's best New York talent, like Jan Minor. Jan Minor, let's talk about Laura Lawton. Now, this was one of the top soap operas, I must confess, and it's I think very early agree. in the morning. <laughs> I know that. It was like I, uh, 10 o'clock in the morning. I didn't follow the adventures of Laura Lawton, but perhaps... It wasn't uh, easy. <laughs> we did everything. <laughs> what was the character like, or what was the situation? She was a marvelous, generally? wonderful, beautiful, lovely lady. She's what all of us would like to be as women, you know, understanding, sympathetic, able to go through crises of all kinds. Well, and what were the crises like? What well, I remember problems? one day Laura was visiting a friend who was dying of a dread disease in the hospital. After talking with her for a while, as best she could, where, as a matter of fact, Mary Jane Higby played the friend who was sick, and she's just going, <gasps> all the time in the deathbed. And I looked down and said, oh, Elizabeth Manning, what a beautiful, complete replica of Queen Hatshepsut's pin she was wearing. It was a giveaway that we mm -hmm. were giving away, mm -hmm. and people would write in and get it. But always it would happen in some tragic <laughs> moment so that you could hardly say the words, you know. And I got caught on the Hatshepsut's, and I said, Queen Hatshepsut, and Ray Johnson broke up laughing. Mary Jane was dying laughing. Everybody was laughing on that microphone. It must have been tragic to the listeners who were really involved with the situation. Yes, you know, I can imagine Having us all so. go, Rosa Rios' organ playing big music to keep us from... Many of the most famous soaps were Frank and Ann Hummert productions, which were sponsored by Sterling Drugs. That's right, and they and had special format that made it a successful, uh, growing concern. One and the, the identification ideas. was one of it. Right. So when you tuned right. in, you always knew who the character was and what they were doing. As far as Frank and Ann Hummert were concerned, they ran a tight ship, didn't they? They certainly did, and they had very specific ideas and... Uh, and did a grand job. I mean, uh, they people really had, perhaps are wondering I think they had five or six a day. They had Stella Dallas, right. Widow Brown, Laura Lawton, Amanda of Honeymoon Hill, Helen Trent, Lorenzo Jones, David Harum. They were all Hummert shows. Yeah. How did they manage to produce so many shows? Well, they had a group of directors and a group mm -hmm. of producers and a group of writers. I mean, they had a tremendous organization. And then, of course, they had coordinators, and Frances von Bernhardi was head of casting, and she had assistants, and it was like working for MGM. The plot lines could be ridiculous. It forced actors to be versatile, as Mandel Kramer remembered. Everything is relative, and only in retrospect do you realize that. Exactly, exactly. People say, well, radio was really so much easier. But it wasn't really, Dick, because that was it. That was the medium at the time. That was the advertising medium. The pressures were there. And in many ways, 
radio was more difficult because you had only the one tool. You had only a voice to portray a character with. Whereas in a visual medium like television, everybody has their, their own preconceived idea of what somebody looks like, or what a lawyer looks like, or what, what a police chief should look like, or what a, what a hood or a gangster should look like, or what a sexy young girl or a matronly woman. In radio, we ran the gamut. You know, you played everything. Sure. And you had to do it all in your head and let it all come out through your voice. And you couldn't do that unless your character was right. Women were as likely to be in the midday director's chair as men, and they often exuded confidence that put fear into young radio actors. Another name that actors will remember, certainly, a woman by the name of Martha Atwell, who directed a great many of the daytime uh, dramatic shows for Blackett, Sample, and Hummert, Air Features. But she was literally unapproachable. She was a lovely lady, as I found out later, but no one approached her. I mean, on the third floor, when this lady walked by, nobody approached her because she was very aloof and she was that she could just, you know, destroy you with a look. Later on, I found out that, you know, you, you never speak to her. You just don't. But in going, I didn't know this at the time. You know, fools rush in. <laughs> That's right. And I had this list of names of people who directed these shows, and I saw Martha Atwell. And look at all the shows she directs. Well, I did what, what seemed the only normal, natural thing to do. I looked up Martha Atwell in the New York Telephone Directory, and I called her. At I'm, home. At home. <laughs> I swear to you, this is the truth. I called her at home, and I introduced myself to her on the phone. And I think she was so amused, really, by my complete naivete that I had the incredible effrontery to do this, you know. And I said, I'm new in New York, and I understand that you direct the show and the show and the show, and I would like very much to read for you, you know, if that's at all possible. I don't know what her reaction was, except I can only think that she must have been terribly amused because she said, you come to NBC tomorrow, a studio, whatever it was, uh, at such and such a time. I said, thank you very much. And I didn't. I, I thought, that's the way you do it. Mm-hmm. So I went. I was there. And I waited until the rehearsal broke. And I went in. And here was this lady. And I introduced my. I said, I'm Mandel Kramer. I spoke to you on the phone. And uh, she said, let me hear you read this. And she handed me a script. I think it was a character called Bluey Masters or something. It was <laughs> a gangster. And I read about three lines for her. Yes? Shut up, Professor. Get back into your compartment. What are you doing with that gun? Who are you? What do you want? You're bringing something to that California conference, Professor. It's a culture. Little germs in a flask. I don't know what you're talking about. Now, don't stall. There's no time. I know all about it. And she said, all right, are you available for whatever the show was next week? Was I available? (laughs) And I'll tell you something. I worked for this lady on and off for 20 years. And, you know, she always cast me as that same part. No matter what the name was, it was... Of the character was always Bluey Masters. I always <laughs> came in, and it was always, all right, buddy, hand it over now. You know, it's funny, though. You know, fools rush in, I guess. It's six in the evening as Kate Beekman, on her way to meet Gordy Weber at Grand Terminal Station, leaves her home, walks to the subway station, goes downstairs and through the turnstile. McInerney. Jay McInerney. Oh, hello, Kate. I'm very fine, thank you. Both Jan Miner and Mandel Kramer were regulars on Perry Mason, which took to the air with this episode at 2.15 in the afternoon on December 31st, 1953. I said I was wrong, Officer McInerney. I know that men would never have bothered me if I... Kate, I wasn't mad at you. Then why didn't you speak to me? 
I saw you last night, and you saw me. I know you did. A and this afternoon. But you didn't speak. Why didn't you? Well, I, uh, uh, uh here's your train, Kate. Well, there'll be another one, and I've plenty of time for an answer. It hurts me when my friends don't speak. Why, I wouldn't hurt you for anything in this wide, wide world, Kate Beekman. Oh. You didn't speak to me. Well, I, uh... I wasn't sure you wanted me to. I, uh, I didn't want to remind you of that fellow. And... You couldn't remind me of him? Why, you... You just couldn't. <laughs> well, then I'll mend my ways and mind my manners and speak at all times hereafter. <laughs> but see that you do, sir. That's a promise, Sergeant. <laughs> <laughs> now, can I ask you another question? Uh, well, now, I don't know. Your questions kind of knock a man off his feet. Uh, but I'll, I'll take a chance. You're a brave man, sir. Anyhow, curious. Well? Well, it's about Skipper. I've got a little white and brown dog. Well, now, when'd you get him? Today. Oh, he's the cutest thing, Jay. Um, Mr. McInerney. Why don't you call I've him? I've never had a dog. Isn't he supposed to have a collar and a tag? Yes, ma'am. And rabies shots. And he's got to be registered. Oh, dear. Oh, he's such a sweet little dog. Well, I suppose I'll have to do it. But... Could you tell me where I should take him to? I was about to make a suggestion, uh, with your permission. I've, uh, owned several pups myself, so I know where to go and what to do. So, uh, uh I was thinking, uh, if it's okay with you and your folks, of course, I, uh, I was thinking I've got the morning off tomorrow, and if you like, I'd, uh, be more than happy to take, uh, uh, Mr. Skipper for his collar and tag and shots. Oh, would you? I was also thinking that if, uh, you're interested in learning where to take him yourself in case you get another dog, you understand? I could go with you. I was about to suggest it in case you're interested. Uh, in fact, uh, how about we, uh, that is you and me, not Skipper, uh, go and have a cup of hot chocolate now? Oh. No? Oh, I, I'm sorry. Well, no offense. I thought if you had time... Well, I, I do have to take the next train. I, I'm going to say goodbye to the man who gave me Skipper. Oh? Fellow I know? <laughs> I don't think so. Oh, well, it was uh, nice of him to give you the dog, and uh, you're telling him goodbye, huh? Mm-hmm. Well, you'd better scoot here. Your subway's in. I I'd rather go have hot chocolate with you, but he's leaving from Grand Terminal Station. There's nobody else to tell him goodbye. But it, it's such a lonely feeling when you go away and there's nobody to say goodbye. Well, I'd better go. I'll, I'll see you tomorrow, huh? Yes. lonely saying goodbye in any station or any time to that sweet girl. <laughs> ah, look at you, Jay McInerney, mooning like a sick calf. Anyhow, I'm glad she's telling the fella goodbye. Perry Mason debuted over CBS Airwaves on October 18, 1943. He was a crime-busting lawyer. At points, Jan Miner played Della Street Mason's secretary, while Mandel Kramer was Police Lieutenant Tragg. By the end of 1953, the cast had greatly expanded. As you know, the fellow is Gordy Weber. And you also know Gordy hopes his meeting with Kate will not result in a goodbye. Gordy was lucky when he chose Grand Terminal to make his final bid for Kate's sympathy. The vast, impersonal place makes one alone feel more alone, creates the illusion of friendship when acquaintances meet. Capital Limited, now loading at gate 13. 
Kate! Hello, Kate. Uh, hello, Mr. Weber. Well, I, I was scared you'd change your mind. Well, I'm glad you came down to see me off. Would you like a drink? Uh, hot chocolate. Oh, that's the second offer. You don't really want any, do you? Well, I wouldn't kid you, Kate. I'm not much of a hot chocolate man, but if you'd like some... No, thanks. Well, then let's sit down, huh? My, uh, my train leaves from gate nine. Sit down, Kate. When does it leave? Oh, in a few minutes. Uh, let's not, uh... Oh, how's Skipper? Oh, uh, he's fine. He's the cutest thing. Yeah, he's a nice little dog. Mr. Weber... Look, Kate, I'm walking through that gate in a few minutes. These last few minutes, call me Gordy, huh? All right, Gordy. Now tell me about Skipper. Why, he seems happy. He seems to like me. Sure, sure. I I didn't have time to get him a tag and all, but you Oh, that's all right. I'll do it. Oh, he can do tricks, Kate. Wait till you see him sit up and and, and beg and and he'll, he'll, he'll roll over and... I don't want to talk about Skipper. You know what I want to say. Kate, I don't I don't know what I did, but Gordy. Look, please, listen, will you? I'm going away now. It's important to get things straight when you go away, you know? Or maybe you don't. But going away makes you feel like Yes, I I know. When I went away to school and mother and I said goodbye to Sis and Timmy. Oh, your your brother and sister? Capital Limited. Is I'm that your train? No, no, I got a few minutes, and then the wide open spaces. Where are you going? Oh, out west for a while. This spring, I'll probably hook up with a carny. What? Carnival. I did a couple of years with one. <laughs> Step right up, ladies and gentlemen, see the fabulous dancing mice. Yes, yeah, some life. Why are you leaving, Gordy? Oh, I don't know. She, the girl who brought me, Skipper. Tony? Nice girl. She says you're just, just giving up the nightclub. Uh-huh. Why, Gordy? Tony says it's your big chance. Yeah, it's a chance. Well, then, why not fight for it? What's the use? Gordy, everybody wants things. Yeah, I used to think so. I wanted that club. You bet I wanted it. On radio, Mason was as much detective as lawyer, and the version Raymond Burr played on TV was supposed to be markedly different. Incidentally, you know, that, nothing like that exists anymore. In the old days, the third floor at NBC was where everybody congregated. There were Colby's, which is non-existent now. Colby's was the restaurant at CBS, 485 Madison Avenue. So if you wanted to meet any of your friends or just find out what was going on, you just ended up on the third floor of NBC over at Colby's, and you kind of got the word there. It was all passed on. Everybody congregated there, and it was social. And also, there was a good chance to nab a director as he walked through the, you know, from sure. one studio to another, because the third floor was where a great many of the dramatic shows came from, from the studios on the third floor. But radio was really the, my first love, you know. The great camaraderie that existed in radio in the early days, before your time, Dick, when there was a, a relatively small number of us, I don't know how many exactly, but a fairly small group of actors who were fortunate enough to be in demand most of the time. You could work, and did work, seven days a week. Our guest is Mandel Kramer here on the Golden Age. <laughs> Golden Age of Radio. Golden Golden Edge Edge of Edge of Edge. Edge. How about that? Go. Got a new name for the show. <laughs> I just thought I'd throw a plug in there for you. <laughs> Who is known as Bill Marceau on Edge of Night, of course, the police chief. Incidentally, how did you uh, arrive at that role? Was Bill Marceau introduced on the program as the police chief? You didn't work your way up? No, he started out as a lieutenant. Oh, he did? And then he became a captain, and now I'm the chief, and I just hope they don't make me the commissioner, because he's never seen. <laughs> we just talk about the commissioner. <laughs> 
You might mention how that show got started. Uh, I never knew this until you told me about it at lunch. Yes, we were talking. Actually, we we were talking about about, about the transition about, from uh, when and, you were doing, doing radio. Perry Mason and radio. Johnny Larkin and I were doing the Perry Mason radio show. Johnny was playing Perry Mason, and I was doing Lieutenant Tragg as a daytime radio show. Then back in, uh, well, I guess it was '56, they decided that they would put uh, Perry Mason on as a half-hour daytime dramatic show. At this point, all the uh, dramatic shows had been 15-minute shows. Right. Edge of Night and As the World Turns were the first two half-hour dramatic shows. Ultimately, some of the shows that started out as 15-minute shows, like uh, Search, Guiding Light, and there may have been one or two others, went half-hour. But we were the first to start out as half-hour shows. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. The original plan was to put Perry Mason on as a half-hour dramatic melodrama. Well, as I understand it, I hope my facts are straight, they had some problems with Earl Stanley Gardner in arranging for the kind of negotiating, the kind of release that would be necessary in order to uh, put Perry Mason on. Obviously, they were unable to resolve those problems, whatever they were, so they decided that they would do that kind of a format, but change the names. And... Instead of it being Perry Mason, it became The Edge of Night. Instead of the character being Perry Mason, the criminal lawyer, he was Mike Carr. And Lieutenant Tragg became Bill Marceau. That's pretty much how it came about, how the idea of the show came about. Because we are really the only daytime show that is really melodrama. That's most, right. That's most right. of the daytime shows are family things, you know. But we're really melodrama. I mean, uh, in a way, I'm still doing cops and robbers, though I'm on the other side of the, uh, of the fence now. And we have a lot of action, and we have a lot of mystery, and we have a lot of whodunit going on. The radio version of Perry Mason ran until December 30th, 1955. Hollywood radio, radio on the West Coast, was very closely knit. I remember when I came, when I was in New York, working regularly in, on East Coast radio, and I told a group of people I was coming to the West Coast for a lot of reasons. Three or four of my good friends in New York radio said, you're going to be very hard-pressed to earn a living. They will not let you in. You're going to have a rough time. You don't know what a closed shop that is. It starts with the directors, the actors, but basically the directors and the writers have a very rigid attitude toward incoming talent, much more than New York. And I was getting this from uh, Ted DeCorsia, Santos Ortega. You know, the guys I was working with, I found that to be quite true. I came out from New York with my own series on ABC. I was star at playing the title role in the show. Ellery Queen. I was the 11th or 12th Ellery. And the show provided me with, you know, a foothold, and I felt quite comfortable because I thought, they cannot ignore me. I am here doing a show every week, and they must hear it, and they must allow me entry and give me auditions, etc. Not so. It was enormously difficult. And Lillian's experience with a Bill Spears saying, nope, is quite typical. I think it was Norman MacDonald, not with Gunsmoke, but something else, who f was the first 
West Coast director to allow me in to his normal casting procedure. And then Dwight Hauser, rest in peace at ABC. After that, it became a little easier. But when but Ellery Norman was not that entrenched. I mean, when we no, started, he was, he was sort of a beginner himself. That's right. And I think that helped. He was more flexible. In New York City, people have a choice of several arteries of transportation. Certainly the most important means within the city is the subway. Almost any section of the city is within easy walking distance of a subway station. And by subway, one can travel to most points in the city, quicker and cheaper than by any other way. The subway schedules are arranged to meet the changing flow of traffic. In the early morning, there is heavy subway travel, followed by a slackening. In the late afternoon, there is a second rush, returning workers to their homes. At night, the load grows lighter and lighter. From Hollywood, the CBS Radio Workshop. Desk clerk. General American 411, right away. Good afternoon, Arthur. Oh, hello, Mr. Shelby. Any messages for me? Well, not since I came on, sir. May I have my key, please? I'm sorry, Mr. Shelby, but the manager says not to give you your key until your bill's paid. Oh? It's 113 bucks and some odd cents. I know. You want I should call him so you can talk to him about it? No, never mind. Sorry, Mr. Shelby. It's not your fault, Arthur. I'll stop back in a couple of days to see if there's any mail. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I'm sorry, Mrs. Martin. $14.60, 65, 66 cents. Well, I can eat for a week or so, and plenty of people sleep in the subway. March 1956 issue of Harper's Magazine featured a short story by Edmund G. Love about a man named Henry Shelby who'd been living on the New York streets for the previous three years. Shelby, a college-educated man, sought to live as civilized and normal life as possible while remaining purposely destitute. Love himself had been sleeping on subway trains throughout the 1950s, encountering many unique individuals. On August 3rd, 1956, CBS adapted the story for the CBS Radio Workshop. William N. Robeson directed, and Byron Kane starred. CBS Radio presents the CBS Radio Workshop, dedicated to man's imagination, the theater of the mind. Tonight, subways are for sleeping, based upon the Harper's Magazine article by Edmund G. Love. A true story of one man's strange adjustment to mid-century materialism in the largest city in the world.
Have you ever gotten fed up with rent, taxes, and bills, and the clatter of telephones? With all the demands, large and small, that our complicated civilization makes upon us. Henry Shelby finally did. When they locked him out of his hotel room, he stayed out. For the past three years, he has, by choice, been homeless and without a steady job. Yet, Henry Shelby is no bum. He is as well-dressed and as smoothly shaven as the next man you'll meet. He's not stupid. He holds a master's degree in economics and is a former schoolteacher. He has never visited a soup kitchen or stood in a bread line or asked for a night's lodging at a Bowery mission. Still, he has learned for himself how to maintain his sanity and peace of mind in a confused and confusing society which takes from a man more than it gives. Henry Shelby has reversed the process, and this is how he does it. I'm getting along all right. I'm perfectly happy. I'm just waiting to see how things come out. In the meantime, I see to it that I always have at least 15 cents, so I'm sure of a place to sleep. And the truest statement I ever heard is that no one will ever starve to death in the United States. A6 in the bean soup. All out of Yankee bean, Mac. Cream of tomatoes, okay. Tomato a bowl. Well, as I live and hope to, Shelby. Hello, Ernie. See, you've got the counterman wanted sign in the window. Yeah. Guy was here two weeks. Today never shows. Want to go to work right now? Sure. Well, go on back and grab a hat and jacket. I ain't even checked cash from breakfast yet. Okay, fine. Want a cup of coffee or something first? Go right ahead. No, I'm fine. Here's your soup, Mac. Crackers or bread? Crackers. Hey, ain't you the regular counterman? Me? I'm supposed to manage a joint. You give any bum comes along a job? Shelby ain't no bum, Mac. He's a college graduate. Oh. Michigan or someplace like that. Used to be a school teacher, too. So? Well, he shows up every three, four months, works a couple of days for five bucks a day in his meals, and then he's gone. When he tells me he ain't coming back. So that makes him he ain't a bum. Well, it does in my book. He can do anything around the joint. Do it plenty good, too. How's the soup? All right. Anything else? Uh, I don't know yet. This jacket isn't exactly the best fit in the world. <laughs> you look great, Shelby. I'll bet. Now, uh, here's your checks and the punch. Everything's the same as last time he was here. Uh, not quite. Corned beef and beans are up a nickel. <laughs> hey, they are at that. I forgot. Well, she's all yours. I'll uh, check the register. Anything else for you, sir? Pie? Coffee? Well, I might have some pie at that, um... Apple. Right. Uh, with cheese, I guess. Right. Empty the mousetrap on this pie. Hey, uh, look, Shelby, I was thinking, I, uh, I got no night chef for the moment either. Why don't you stick around for a couple of weeks and help me out? Well... Eight-hour shift, five days, 55 bucks, and all the food you can steal. Here you are, sir. Well, I'll think about it, Ernie. <laughs> actually didn't have to think about it. When I went in, I knew I'd only stay for a few days. I have five or six places like that. They're my social security. I use them when my cash is way down and my suit needs dry cleaning. And when I'm ready for a good, long sleep, lying down. The CBS Radio Workshop was a revival of the earlier Columbia Workshop, which had run on CBS stations between 1936 and 47. Launched on January 27, 1956, 
it quickly provided an important outlet for radio experimentation. The program would shift origination between New York and Hollywood from week to week. The technical and artistic talent represented the very finest CBS possessed at the time. Yes, New York offers many diversions. There is the waterfront, the ferry boats, the slips where the huge liners dock. I come down here a couple of times a week. I always try to be around when the Mary or the Elizabeth are coming in. Now, what's that Weehawken ferry doing a quarter mile off her course? Just sightseeing, I'll bet. Or her captain ought to have his confounded papers picked up. Shelby enjoys the ferry boats, all of them, but his favorite is the Staten Island Ferry. There's nothing quite like it in the world. Outward bound from the battery, there's the thrill of passing the Statue of Liberty. And coming back, Miss Liberty welcomes you home as the incredible skyline of lower Manhattan hangs shimmering in the haze, like the pleasure dome of Kublai Khan. Where else can a poor man get such an ocean voyage for a dime? Of course, 10 cents for one round trip does put the Staten Island Ferry in the luxury class, but during the rush hours, Shelby has discovered that he can board the Jersey Central ferries across the Hudson and make three or four trips for the same dime without being noticed. This kills time and also furnishes amusement, for Shelby quietly enjoys criticizing the pilots who do not bring their vessels squarely into the slips. Among other things, Henry Shelby has become an expert on the management and conduct of New York Harbor. By 1956, Byron Kane was a 15-year veteran. Yes, indeed. I knew that I was going to make $31. That was a show that was called a sustaining show. Those were shows that were not sponsored. Although Coast to Coast, scale for a radio actor, was $31. I knew that because in addition to me hanging around and eating up scripts, I became the friend of the Afro representative, a man named Austin Sherman who was like a father to me, and I knew all of the scales. And yes, I got paid $31 and got my Afra card. I think it cost $25 in those days. <laughs> I had to be a member of Afra to perform. So yes, I, I got paid $31, and then we went on. And the big show, uh, Lux was the biggest paying show for a scale for a, a radio actor because it entailed about four or five days rehearsal. I think that the paycheck would be about 85 to 90 dollars in those days was a lot of money for scale so yes i did get paid from then on i got paid <laughs> there are the new buildings that constantly alter new york skyline our well-kempt vagrant knows every major construction project in town and shows up at the exact moment some critical problem is to be solved no 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 a little more to the right Say, does it look to you as if they're placing that girder properly? It doesn't right now, but they'll raise it another three feet and then force it to the right with a cross member. Oh, yes, yes, I see. Actually, it's a different technique than we're accustomed to watching in the usual steel skeleton construction. Uh, seems to me there'll be too much strain on the cross member. No, I understand the alloy is both light enough and strong enough so that, in effect, they're employing a variant of the ancient Egyptian post and lintel method. Say, there are similarities, aren't there? You're an engineer, I take it. 
No. Matter of fact, my master's was in economics. Is that so? I'm liberal arts myself, Yale, 28. Instruction's sort of hobby of mine. <laughs> Watching it at any rate. Mine, too. So much so that I've done quite a bit of reading on it. Uh, there. You see what they're doing now? That's how they equalize the stresses. So they do. Uh, your office in the neighborhood? No, it isn't. I just happen to be passing this way. Uh, mine's just across the street, 230 Park. I'm H.J. Chisholm, Regal Paper Company. How do you do, sir? I'm Henry Shelby. Hello. You with the firm, or are you in business for yourself? Neither. I don't have a connection right now. Is that a fact? Well, if you're looking, why don't you stop by the office whenever it suits you? We might very well have something for a chap like you. That's mighty nice of you, Mr. Chisholm. I'm not really looking at present, but I'll certainly remember you when I am. I wish you would. Say... Wouldn't it save time and an extra piece of heavy equipment to haul those I-beams up on the construction elevator and then place them with one of those small hoists? It seems that it would at that. I think you have something there, Mr. Chisholm. One of the actors featured in this episode was Alan Reed. Well, that's good. You're working with Mel Blanc on that show. Mel and I worked together very closely. You worked yeah. a number of years ago in radio with Mel. I was on Mel's show. On his yeah, show, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, he had his own show and I had my own show and... Hans Conried once had his own show. Mm -hmm. It is impossible for a good character man to come up with a central, pleasing character that can carry a show. We've had to come to the realization mm -hmm. that we belong in a certain spot. We are character men. We can play character leads, as we do mm -hmm. in the Flintstones. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But in the old radio days... I had, well, you mentioned it, the Harvest show. Mm -hmm. I, was the, I was the guy. And I had the top writers. Mm -hmm. But uh, I never made it. Of course, I had tough opposition. I was on opposite Rudy Valley at his <laughs> toughest, at, his, at the height. <laughs> well, you, you, though, as a, a main character, a good, solid supporting character in so many shows, you literally stole the show. In a lot week of shows. After week after week, you did. I mean, shows. you were Pasquale in uh, Life, Life with Luigi. Luigi. That's right. You've got a memory. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, the patternless pattern of Henry Shelby's days and the days of perhaps thousands like him, men who choose to work only enough to maintain a bare thread of personal existence in a society that clamors for workers and rewards them with possessions and security and the same comfortable resting place each nightfall. Where does Henry Shelby sleep? A clean hotel bed is a once-a-month extravagance to him. Perhaps he trudges to the Pennsylvania station and boards an 8th Avenue subway train at about 1 o'clock in the morning. That's why his cash minimum is 15 cents, the price of a subway token. He settles himself in the almost empty front car and drops off to sleep. He awakens before he reaches the end of the line, has a smoke, boards another train and sleeps to the other end of the line. He has several standard trips mapped out, J Street to Queens, back to the Brooklyn end of the line, up to the tip of Manhattan, back to Penn Station. In five hours, he has probably netted four hours sleep. He has learned the habits of the transportation police, and he tries to keep himself from becoming too familiar a figure. That's why I use the subway maybe only every other night. Or not quite that often. In warm weather, there are fire escapes, some of them covered, and Central Park and Prospect Park. And when it's really hot, there are the beaches. No one ever bothers you there. Always plenty of legitimate sleepers trying to beat the heat. 
When it rains and when the New York winter comes, there are other carefully cataloged places for shelter and a few hours sleep. Grand Central, Penn Station, the Port Authority bus terminal, hotel lobbies. There are rules of conduct for each, and Henry Shelby knows and observes them all. On rare occasions, he's questioned, but he always has the answers. Come on there, mister. Hmm? Come on, wake up, up, uh, up, up. Oh, well, I certainly dozed off, didn't I, officer? You certainly did. You think this is a flop house? Of course not. It's very obviously Grand Central Terminal. That it is, and we don't allow bums to nap their ribs in here. Bums? I ought to resent that, officer. Well, resent it all you like. Seems to me I've seen you in here before. Well, that's quite possible. I take the two o'clock local for Poughkeepsie almost every night. I missed it tonight, so I'm waiting for the next train. Uh, 6-5, I believe it is. It is. Can you prove you're not a vag? A what? A vagrant. You got any money on you? Why, yes. Uh, let me see. Six, seven, eight dollars. And here's my ticket to Poughkeepsie. Mm-hmm. Well, you'd better get going, mister, or you'll miss your train. What? Yes, it's two minutes after six. Oh, I had no idea. I nearly overslept. That you did. Thank you so much for waking me. Not at all. That's what I'm here for. Yes. Well, I must say you're right on the job. You bet I am. That's gate nine, mister, the Poughkeepsie local. Yes. Well, I don't want to miss it this time. No, you don't. So, for the first time, Henry Shelby had to take the train for Poughkeepsie under the suspicious glare of the railroad cop. But the ticket was never punched, for he got off the train at 125th Street to begin another day of Manhattan meandering. Henry Shelby is never without three tickets. One to Poughkeepsie, one to Princeton, and the third to Elizabeth, New Jersey. His operating equipment for sleeping in the three major terminals. Why does this strangely bewildered, yet far from hopeless man, live apart from responsibility and the place he could so easily regain in working society? How many weeks, or months, or years will he continue to walk the streets of Manhattan? I don't know how long I'll live this life. I don't have much trouble. I've never gotten drunk and lain in a doorway all day. I've never been on a police blotter. I've never had to beg. Things seem so easy and natural, just as though they were supposed to be this way. I'm not going to look at the future. All I know now is that at six o'clock, I'm going to be at a little delicatessen up on Broadway where they serve a mighty fine boiled beef dinner for 68 cents. And I'd better get going. Takes me almost an hour to walk it. Why don't I take the subway? Why, subways are for sleeping. The CBS Radio Workshop is produced in Hollywood by William N. Robeson and was tonight directed by Mr. Robeson. Subways Are for Sleeping was based on the Harper's Magazine article by Edmund G. Love and was adapted for the workshop by Fran Van Hartsfeld. Henry Shelby was played by Byron Kane and the narrator was William Keneally. Also heard in the cast were Sarah Salby, Helene Burke, Edwin Bruce, Frank Gerstel, Court Falkenberg, Tony Barrett, Ted Bliss, and Alan Reed. The original score was composed and conducted by Fred Steiner. Eventually, radio's shrinking audience 
forced the CBS radio workshop off the air after the September 27, 1957 episode. Next week, from New York, the workshop will present Only Johnny Knows, a survey of child training from the birds and the bees era of wonderful innocence a century ago to the complex and guilt era of today's psychiatric sophistication. Because the show came to the airwaves long after transcription became commonplace, broadcast recordings of the series are available in fantastic quality. Some are as timeless and creative as anything ever produced in the media. This Sunday, when World Music Festivals comes your way on most of these same stations. Stay tuned for five minutes of CBS News to be followed over most of these same stations by My Son Jeep. America listens most to the CBS radio network. popularity of Subways Are for Sleeping eventually led to a loosely adapted Broadway production, which opened on December 27, 1961 at the St. James Theatre. It ran for 205 performances. Ali Silva of Fireside Mystery Theater, coming to you at a time of great peril. Some fiend has tied me to a rope dangling just a few feet over a giant boiling cauldron of... What is that? It smells like gazpacho? But gazpacho is supposed to be served cold. Oh, whatever. Why would I put myself in such a situation? Because we at Fireside Mystery Theater will do whatever it takes to create exciting audio drama. Enjoy our acclaimed anthology series of original eerie radio plays, performed before a live audience by a full cast of magnificent actors and a crew of amazing musicians and technicians. Just go to FiresideMysteryTheater.com for show listings, info about us, and links to our podcast. Take a listen for yourself today and find out why our podcast is among one of the top audio drama series out there. Oh, brother. That villain is cutting my rope. Well, that must mean my time is up. So tune in and subscribe to the Fireside Mystery Theater podcast. Oh, and be sure to mind the shadow. I was challenged once by Bill Robeson, who is, you know, one of our finest radio directors right. ever, a producer, director, and a fine writer as well. But he had interviewed me and said, what is this now that you double? And I said, oh, yeah, I can do, you know, a couple of voices. He says, can you talk to yourself? And I said, well, I guess, why not? Well, he brought me on a show with Elliot Lewis. and had me play five parts. 
And he kept waiting for me to complain, and I never said a word. I just marked all the parts. And a couple of them were just one-liners. But mm -hmm. still, one time I had three characters on the same page, all talking to themselves. Me. <laughs> that's not off, easy. I no, bet that's We got off easy. the air, and he said, I guess you can double. <laughs> just like that. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. A lot of fun. And tell me what street compares with Mott Street in in 1958, William N. Robeson was in the midst of a three-year run as director of Suspense. CBS had found multiple sponsorship for the pared-down version of radio's outstanding theater of thrills. They moved the show to Sunday afternoons at 4.35 from WCBS in New York and 7.05 from KNX in Los Angeles. Although dramatic radio was rapidly shrinking, the medium's most talented performers weren't ready to give up on the genre they loved. All right, but where's the sponsor who will put, now get this, well, I'm talking about 20-year-old figures, who will put $5,000 into a superb super production. That's all it would cost in radio. There isn't a sponsor in this country, but $5,000 a week. He'll put $250,000 into a film. He won't put $5,000 into a radio show. Let him give me the $5,000 and see what happens. You won't get any audience. But those you get will buy your product by the barrel. They'll be so grateful. Radio's remaining directors like Bill Robeson, Norman MacDonald, Elliot Lewis, and Anthony Ellis would cast as many character actors for union-scale wages as possible. On May 11, 1958, Suspense presented Subway Stop, a horrifying tale about what can go wrong if you drink too much late at night in New York. It guest starred Skip Homeyer with Virginia Gregg, Barney Phillips, Jackie Kelk, and Shirley Mitchell in supporting roles. I would occasionally have four shows a day. Some would be at CBS. There were times when the artist entrance was too far for me to run through. They'd have a special page holding a door because it, the timing was so awful. I mean, it was maybe five minutes apart to get from CBS to NBC. And we were a family. Mm -hmm. We still are very, very close. Janet Waldo and I are very close friends. Ginny, Greg, Alvia Allman. Mm -hmm. It's just, it was a nucleus of people that you never grew away from. And they were dear, wonderful people. And television, you know, you do a show, you never see anybody again. Suspense. And the producer of radio's outstanding theater of thrills, the master of mystery and adventure, William N. Robeson. It is relatively easy to tell a tale of terror and suspense against an exotic faraway background. India, say, with its decoits and fakirs. Or China, with its death of a thousand exquisite tortures. Or Paris, with its apache sleeping under the bridges. 
Since few of us have ever been there, the author, who probably hasn't been there either, can speak freely. But it is an infinitely more difficult task to take the everyday environment with which we are all familiar and tell against it a tale of terror that could happen to any one of us. Such a task has been brilliantly accomplished by Arthur Zagoris in the story of suspense you are about to hear. Listen. Listen, then, as Skip Holmeyer stars in Subway Stop, which begins in exactly one minute. What are some of the symbols for heroism? Robeson toiled under the handicaps of shrinking budgets, time slots, and audiences. George Walsh, famous as Gunsmoke's announcer, was by 1958 the announcer on suspense as well. Well, I was the last voice on the format of suspense, known to my daughters in those days who were pretty small as Spooky Daddy. Spooky Daddy. <laughs> did, you, did you ever use the voice, like, for disciplinary purposes? Never worked. Never worked, huh? They, knew. they laughed at you, didn't they, George? <laughs> Are today's announcers, do you think, George, is as good as they were back in the golden days of radio? Well, I don't think they were announcers in the same sense as they were in those days. I think today they're all doing commercials. There's hardly any such thing as a format announcer anymore, hardly any such thing as a staff announcer anymore. That's right. Do you remember the princely sum of money, perhaps, that you made as an announcer for a network radio program in those days? Oh, I think, uh, I think we got $40, maybe. For a program? Yeah. Forty bucks. Does that compare with the memories of Jack Crucian and Shirley Mitchell? And Pay glad is... to get it. <laughs> you bet. Pay has gone up over the years. Talking... Now we get forty-two dollars. Forty-two fifty. You're talking to three scale workers. <laughs> <laughs> and now, Subway Stop, starring Skip Holmeyer, a tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. party, if you could call it that, was strictly stag. Just a bunch of guys I'd gone to college with. Everybody in old clothes wearing a weekend stubble. Sort of a bull session with booze. And even though we all had to go to work the next morning, it was past three o'clock when we broke up. Mike and John walked me down the empty street to the subway station. The city's strange in the middle of the night. Strange and unreal. It seemed to belong to the tipsy three of us. Its streets empty, save for a couple of characters standing at the corner. The stoplights blinking in automated precision, controlling the traffic that wasn't there. Hold it. Hold it, you guys. What? What's the matter? Hey, what's happened to the elevated? It's missing. Somebody's stolen it. Yeah? Yeah. All right, who stole the elevator? Come on, own up. Who stole it? Hey, didn't you guys hear? The elves going on the ground. What, are they ashamed of it? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Oh, the poor old elves. Oh. Hey, how do I get my train? Now you dig a hole. You do? Yeah. Where? Right here. Next to this lamppost. Move aside, Sonny. Hey, watch who you're pushing, fatso. Sorry, I didn't mean to push you, pimples. Wise guy, huh? Tell him, Gooba. I'll tell him, Din. You better get on your way, Sonny, before I turn you in. There's a curfew against you teenagers been out this late. You boys better go on home. Who asked you, Pops? Yeah. You punks better blow. Well, you keep out of this banana nose. Who are you? Oh. Oh, get up, get up. I can drop you again. Uh, take, take it easy, John. Let's see the little boys... Uh, 
tired of playing with the big boys. You're gonna take that goober. Shut up, Din. Let's go. <laughs> Kids. <laughs> they like to act tough, but they're not really. You know, I was the same way. Well, that makes you think you've changed. <laughs> right. I guess I haven't changed. I'm just an older teenager, that's all. Uh-oh. Mm -hmm. Hey, look what's heading right for us. Good. Tonight ain't our night. Hey, any of you fellas care to help a guy out? You hit the wrong guys. Yeah, we're flat, too. We were gonna ask you for a dime. Please. Go on, beat it. Please. You heard my father scram. Anything would help, a nickel, a dime. How much wine can you buy for a dime? I ain't gonna spend it on wine, honest. Come off it. Take off. Now, stop picking on a mic. Here, here, maybe I got some change. See, I got 62 cents left after that last poker hand. I need 15 cents for the subway and 15 for the bus. That leaves 32 cents. Oh, 32 cents help you? Thanks, mister, thanks. And God bless you. One of those winos hit you every second in this neighborhood. The neighborhood's changing. It's going downhill. Is this where I catch my train? Yep, downstairs. Okay, I better take off. You come over my place on Tuesday, right? Sure, Johnny. Oh, listen, th thanks for the party. I had a great time. Okay, we'll see you too. Yeah, Ooh. Hey, you stairs keep still. Oh, the subway's coming. I better hurry. Let me have a token. How many? One. Oh, just a second. I can't find my money. How many? I told you. Fair, please. Here you are. Hey, hold it! Hey, hold it! Oh, nuts. Hey, lady, thanks a lot. You're welcome. Maybe it was the stale smell of the subway or the excitement of the near fight. Maybe it was all I'd had to drink. The men's room was located at the dimly lit far end of the platform. I ran to it. Afterwards, I felt better. I was washing the bad taste out of my mouth when the door opened. I turned, and there were the two teenagers. Hold it, Pops. Hey, get away from the door. Just step back, Pops. You ain't going nowhere. What do you want? Are you listening to the little man, Din? I'm listening. Don't sound so tough, does he? He ain't got the big boys around. And he needs the big boys. Don't you, Pops? He needs them. Because he's a small one, ain't you, little Pops? Yeah, little Pops. He's a small one. Real small. Like as not, I could break him up myself. Easy. Like as not, you could too, huh, Din? Easy. Look, I'm not asking for trouble, but if you guys want it, you gonna give me a hard time, Pops? Get him, Goob. I'll get him. I've been choked, huh, Pops? See this, Pops? Right here, under your eyeball. That's right. That's a knife. Use it, Gooba. Cut him up a little. Look at him, Din. Oh, Pops is a sweating and a sweating. Go, man, go. Yeah, man, yeah. Look out, Gooba. Oh, oh, you hit me, will you? Get his arm, Din. Cripe's sake, get his arm. Yeah. There, 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 now, now. Once upon a time, Pops, there was this little boy, and he oh. didn't like his Pops. Oh! Because his Pops spoke bad like. Oh. And old Goober didn't like that. Oh. Oh, come on, Din, come on, get in. No, 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 man, don't use your feet. That ain't kosher. 
use your knee. quiet for a long time. I knew I was lying on the floor of the men's room in the subway. I couldn't remember why or how I got there. Far off, as if in a well, I heard a voice. Looky what we got here. What's the matter, son? Help. Oh, what's wrong? You had too much. Oh, it's too bad. Let's just look for your wallet, eh? See if we find out where you live, son. Hmm. No money. Now, that's not so good, son. Now, here, let's just turn you over. No! No, no, no. Let's see. See, nothing in that pocket. Hmm. Cigarette lighter. Hmm. Cigarettes. Back. Oh, you smoke too much, son. I'll just keep these. Now, let's see what's in the other pocket. No! Now, what's the message, son? I ain't going to hurt you. Let's see. Hmm, 15 cents. I'm kind of disappointed in you, boy, but well, that watch might make up for it. Now, let's see it. Do you mind if I take it off here? Hey, good. Thank you. Oh, here comes my train, son. But before I leave, a piece of advice for you. Don't drink. It ain't good for you, son. Help. Help! It was a long time before I came to... Virginia Gregg was one of Hollywood's best radio and early television character actresses. I enjoyed the people in it, too. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of loyalty, camaraderie. Mm-hmm. See, we were together so much. In the beginning, there were, oh, I think, 1,500 members of AFRA, then AFRA. They figured about 400, 450 did practically all of the work. Mm-hmm. Of course, that wasn't very many and we spent a great deal of time together and that was before the days of tape mm-hmm. or even on tape lots of times you spent many hours together but we would have a break you didn't have long enough to go anywhere and we got to know each other very very well and our problems they were like family we'd hear about somebody who was having kind of a rough time we'd go to one of the other producers and say gee Dick's having a hard time paying his rent you think there's anything for him next week and They'd get behind him, and he'd be working. So you'd all act as perhaps an agent for someone yeah, else? Yeah, for could. everybody else. It really is a nice family kind of It was. It was. Very, we were very close and very loving, mm-hmm. very no. caring. What do you mean, no? No, don't grab me. I'm hurt. Huh? Yeah, yeah well, you better take care of yourself. Look, I, I got to go. Sorry, buddy. I, I got to get home. myself against the cold wall. I made my way to the cashier's cage. She couldn't see me because the windows were dusty and clouded with grime. I tried to shout, but I couldn't. I tapped on the window. I tapped for a long time before she noticed me. Huh? What do you want? Help. I can't hear a word you're saying. Come over here by the turnstile. Help, please. 
Oh, it's you again. What are you bothering me for? Please. Ah, speak up, you're mumbling. I... <laughs> Too drunk to answer, huh? Look, mister, if you don't want nothing, don't block the way. Did you hear me? Get out of the way. Yes, ma'am. How many? Two, please. Oh, please, help me. Hey, what's the matter with him? Drunk. Looks funny hanging over the turnstile like that. How to call a cop, I guess. Say, look at the blood of his leg. Yeah, he fell down, probably. You sure? He looks hurt. I wouldn't go near him. <laughs> I'm used to his kind. You should see the place I work in. I'll bet. Hey, mister, hey, you hurt? <clears throat> hey, you don't sound good. Maybe you should call a cop. I don't want no trouble. As long as he don't make trouble for me, I won't make no trouble for him. Yeah, but don't you understand Eventually, CBS execs took suspense away from William N. Robeson. The last Hollywood-based production of Suspense aired on August 23, 1959. CBS shifted the series to New York to save $80 on sound effects technicians. Help. The comedic duo of Bob Elliott and Ray Goulding first appeared on radio in 1946 for WHDH in Boston. In July of 1951, they joined NBC's full network with two shows, one a daily morning show and another 60-minute primetime show. With radio audiences leaving for television, and NBC bouncing both programs around its schedule, the shows had mediocre success. They next appeared on Saturday mornings for NBC's Monitor, and in October of 1955, they joined the Mutual Broadcasting System for a 45-minute weekday disc jockey series. That lasted until September 20th, 1957. By the time they joined CBS Radio on June 29th, 1959, the team had refined their spoof character approach like Wally Ballou, the bumbling reporter, who is voiced by Bob Elliott. Ballou here, you the uh, 42nd Street station of uh, Subway. We're down here to get a cross-section of views of folks who are riding the new quiet subway that went into operation just a few days ago. Maybe you can hear in the background the very... Quiet noise that the subway makes as it pulls in and out of the station. How about you, sir? Yes. Do you find that your life has changed, Eddie, since the silent subway was put into operation? Oh, yes. I used to go home and be a nervous wreck. You know, the constant clatter and yelling and screaming. Uh-huh. Now I go home just as serene as a king on his throne. In other words, you lose your temper less frequently than you did before as a result of this. Oh, yes. I'm much more even-tempered now. And, uh... And uh, when I, I find that when I get home, I'm, I'm much nicer fellow to get along with. you find that uh, people are more friendly on the subway? Do ladies get up and give you their seats? No, uh, ladies haven't ever 
continued to work together into the 1980s, even producing three separate National Public Radio series in 1983, 84, and 87. It was just later on when everything became so mechanical, when they would tape everything. They taped the shows and they taped the music and they taped the sound effects and they just taped everything and they taped the heart right out of the business. Because actually, back in the old days, if you were really good, you used your script merely as reference. You didn't stay glued to a script. You were glued to the actor or actors you were working with. It was very, very much like the theater in that sense. I know I was always moving around. My hand was, you know, through my hair and all that sort of thing. You played the show. The lights were darkened, the lights were on you, and you did not play to the audience. You could not. You had to, in the first place, play to the mic to a certain extent so that your S's didn't hiss and you would do it at an angle. And you played to the actor, the scene with the actor. One person, one individual sitting alone in his room with his radio now is a part of that show, is part of that performance because he with his imagination or she with her imagination builds the castle, makes the river and flies the ocean and so forth. You bring your imagination. You are a part of the performance in radio. Everett Sloan, bless him, wherever he is. Another unbelievable. See, people like Everett Sloan, I mean, only a few of us, he would do anything. You go see Citizen Kane and see what he did in Citizen Kane. The thing is that they could function in, uh, in the theater, in film, oh sure, as well as as radio, all virtual yeah, actors. Yeah. They were really actors, not just radio actors, but no, actors. no, oh, no. There's no such thing as a right. radio yeah. actor. Yeah. That is yeah. the final pejorative term. Right, but it's certainly, <laughs> yeah, you certainly could get stereotyped into that if you allowed yourself. But, but so many went from here to the West Coast. Yeah. I'll never forget the night Richard Widmark said goodnight, hi, after the repeat broadcast, and he took the red eye and he went to do the film for Fox where he pushed the old lady down the stairs. 
And he still is there for me, certainly, and I mm -hmm. talk to him. I recently did a series with him for The Voice of America. Mm -hmm. These were wonderful men and women. Just remembering them, I'm grateful to both of you for bringing these memories back. In 1973, Hyman Brown, then 63, got another chance to produce dramatic radio. The idea was one of many that I had in my heart and in my gut for the last five, six, eight years. And I've been trying with networks and with agencies to make them realize that radio drama is one of the most unique forms of entertainment in the world of theater, in the world of communication. And they somehow didn't respond to me. You must know from all that happens on your program and the responses you get mm -hmm. that radio drama offers a listener something which they could not conceivably get in theater, in motion pictures, or in television. Your imagination, you, yourself, your fantasy, comes to the spoken word and you create a unique form of identification, a unique relationship to what's happening, and it enhances. I call it color radio. You can do anything you want with your imagination once I lead you to the point of exercising that imagination. In an attempt to repattern stations and listeners, Brown ambitiously wanted to produce mystery drama seven nights per week. I was invited to come down to Saramar Beach to address the CBS affiliate board. Now this is a group of 15 station owners, managers, who represent the 260 network stations. They make the decisions, they try to think for the others, and usually they set the pattern. I came in, they didn't expect me, and I spoke to these 15 hard, tough, cynical men who have to make a dollar and have to run a station that's number one in their market. And every single one of them, for the first time in the history of the affiliate board, said, we'll carry it. Well, with that as, as a stimulus, we then decided we would go out and try it on other people. We went to KMOX, we went to WCCO, and New York City, uh, CBS is all news. We went to WOR. Everybody said, we'll carry it. We then went to the advertising people and tried to, to make them understand that there is an audience out there. The numbers don't show it. And they responded. We broke the mold, literally. That's the only way to bring something back. We're going to be on the air seven nights a week with a 53-minute complete mystery drama each night. Seven nights a week. Never in the history of radio broadcasting did anybody attempt to do a series seven nights a week. The show would be a direct descendant of Inner Sanctum Mysteries, called the CBS Radio Mystery Theater. When the press release for CBS went out to newspapers across the country, Brown announced that Mystery Theater would be the most exciting breakthrough of the last 10 years. Film and TV veteran E.G. Marshall would host. High Brown has always had the idea. High Brown was always sorry to see television take over. When was the proper time for it? Now, the proper time is now because it's being done, so I'm happy that it is being done now. I don't know what situation exists today for it that did not exist five years ago. I don't know, maybe sociologists can figure those things out when they're making these study of ethnographic populations and so forth. But I don't think the storytelling 
thing has ever left us. Every time you take your child to bed or you go someplace, someone will say, read us a story, read us a story. Oh, I love it. Uh, they say, well, don't you have to re-gear and retool? I said, no, it's like swimming. You never forget how to do that. About six months ago, because I'd known High in the early days of radio, and uh, sometimes I'd go in his office and we'd talk about why, why, why did it all stop? It was so wonderful. People loved it, so why did it all stop? And then we'd give various reasons why television supplanted radio, and we'd say, well, why don't we just get together and do it? We'll find a station someplace, and we'll do it. We'll get a script. We must have scripts there, High. So, yeah, we'll do it. Well, we could never get a station to provide the time for it because it was so strictly structured. And we'd reminisce about it and have a coffee clutch and say, well, someday, because they're not going to forget it forever, it'll have to come back, right? So gradually and finally it did come back, and now we're on the air every night in the week. When the program debuted on January 6th, 1974, it did so as part of a new network radio service called the CBS Radio Drama Network. 218 stations from around the country began broadcasting the show. The need to bring back radio drama was in me. Radio had become music and news and a service rather than an entertainment. Fortunately, Sam Diggs, who is the president of CBS Radio, and I, we were old friends, and we would kick this around at lunch once or twice every six or eight months. And then about a year or a year and a half ago, when I came to him with this idea of seven nights a week to create a habit once again so that the station that carries the drama can truly say, we're the drama station. Stations, as you know today, radio stations, are programs. A station plays a particular kind of thing. It's either all news or all rock. Here we are, back with something where the station can say, we are the drama station. you got to give them a reason for this. On April 11, 1975, the Mystery Theater presented a play called The Phantom Stop. Come in. Welcome. I'm E.G. Marshall. New York is a city of subways, old, new, in construction, and projected, and of the masses of people who ride them daily, commuting to and from work. This is the story of an old and battle-scarred subway user, and a new spur line opened at last, and as usual, too late to achieve its objective, relieve congestion. But it did bring Alvin Freiberg a strange and wonderful freedom from the grinding daily tragedy of a life not worth living. What's the matter, Al? You got an itch or something? We're getting near 35th and Neely. I'm not passing it again. This subway doesn't stop at that station. Why? How do I know? There's got to be a reason. So how come the conductor doesn't know? It's a brand new line. Call the transit authority. I didn't get a chance. I got to know the truth about it just the same. Here it comes, 35th and Neely. This time I got to know. What are you going to do? Stop the train. I'm going to get off. Are you crazy or something? Alvin, stay away from that emergency. mystery drama, The Phantom Stop, was written especially for the Mystery Theater by Ian Martin and stars Norman Rose. It is sponsored in part by Buick Motor Division. I'll be back shortly with Act One. Starred Norman Rose, Nat Pollan, Carol Title, and Bryna Rayburn. 
Hammond Brown even has an acting role as a hard-driving garment district boss. It wasn't a good day in Alvin Freiberg's life. The patterns for the new styles were hard to work out. Seventy yards of cloth on a bolt. You have to lay out the patterns so that you waste the least amount of material. If you're a first-rate firm, you don't cut corners. But if you're just an ordinary firm and times are hard, there's a little temptation to short change. I can't do it, Mr. Goldman. Are you telling me I brought you up in the business? So we'll be a little tight with the seams. We'll still make up. A little tight? Look, here under the arms and on the sides. A woman buys the wrong size, so she takes a deep breath and the seams go... That's her problem. She should buy the right size to begin with. Why, you know, women, that's what always made our line. They could, they could breathe a little buying undersize. Are you telling me how to merchandise? Look, I make patterns. That's all I know. I made them before you were out of public school. I ask you to cut a few corners, and you have to give me an argument. I want only the best for us, Mr. Goldman. The same for me, but we got to go with the time. I don't like to cheat. Who's cheating? We cut a corner here and there. What are you? A conscience for the world? You're better than anyone else? I didn't want to go back. I wanted to go forward. I felt that the dialogue patterns of 74, that the recording techniques of 74, that the whole style of relationship between actor and spoken word is different in 74, and it is. Episodes contained 45 minutes of drama with introduction and posted script. There would be five commercials for CBS and five for the local station, along with a seven-minute news bulletin. Writers like Ian Martin, Sam Dan, and Henry Selzar wrote for the series. They were paid about $350 per script. Actors were paid a union scale of $74 per hour. Every episode was rehearsed and recorded in Studio G on the sixth floor of the old CBS Radio Annex on 52nd Street in New York. Although Mystery Theater won a Peabody in 1975, unfortunately by its third year, CBS gave Brown the airtime, but little money or anything else. Affiliates were free to tape delay or drop the show from its schedule at will, without making any announcements to the listening public. The CBS Radio Mystery Theater lasted until December 31, 1982, closing down major network dramatic radio for the 20th century. In the late 1990s, Hyman Brown revived and replayed the series in syndication through Westwood One. He took over as host and supplied his own high-fidelity recordings from the original broadcasts. I'm very proud that I could have come back in 74 and for nine years brought radio into this century, so to speak. This was contemporary. The stories were about women executives, about women killers. The stories were about the contemporary world as we know it, not something that existed in the Depression and in the war years. So many of your stories relate to the war effort. Let us live in the 90s, not in the 30s. Radio drama takes your imagination, embraces the listener like nothing else in the history of theater. I think our economy, our communication system should tolerate and support radio drama.
the only way it can come back is if somebody gives it a chance to come back. The problem we had on both Sears and Mutual and Zero Hour is that people seem to have forgotten that things have to be sold. It's, it would be very difficult for you to sell me something I've never heard of and didn't know existed. And once I heard of it and found out it existed, didn't know what it was. Mm -hmm. uh, and this was true uh, to some degree of the zero hour shown. It was certainly true of both Sears Radio Theater and Mutual Radio Theater. Everybody had good intentions, but they sat in their offices waiting for somebody to, to call them up and buy the show. And uh, I don't think that's the way that you run the railroad. No. You got to let it let people know it's out there. The audience reaction was marvelous. People would pick it up and they'd listen to it. And as I say, mostly young audience. Although there was no new major network dramatic radio after 1982, it hasn't stopped the growth of the medium through different outlets. With the internet, people now have access to new dramatic audio productions, as well as a massive continually growing archive of recorded radio broadcasts from throughout the 20th century. Perhaps it proves that hope springs eternal. Perhaps we really can go back to our youth. My name is Kieser. Doc Keezer, they call me, though I'm no doctor. These radio people here have asked me to tell you the story of Bethel Meredy, but I, I don't rightly know where to begin. Bethel's a star now, and let me add, a fine actress, which isn't always the same thing. Ask anybody today who the leading young stage actresses are. The answer is Helen Hayes, Catherine Cornell, and Bethel Meredy. Exactly where the whole thing started is hard to say. Maybe long before Bethel was born in the blood of some Meriday ancestor. Maybe it began in Mr. Fossfinder's drugstore back in 1931, when Bethel was still in high school. What'll it be, girls? Jumbo moss of milk. Uh, what's yours, Princess? Hey, what are you having, beautiful? Bethel, wake up! What are you going to have? What? Oh, uh, I don't care anything. When she's in this mood, you can give her a kerosene ipecac someday, and she won't know the difference. Oh, I'll, uh, have a, a maple nut sundae. Okay. Hello, Charlie. Hello, Bethel. Hello, Alva. Move over, Bethel. Sit down here, Charlie. We just saw the most wonderful move. It was called the heart of an understudy. <laughs> the understudy didn't have a friend in the world. She was an orphan, and Frank shot tone. He kept carrying her suitcase. And then one night, the star of the play lay dying. And the understudy played the star's part. And then she married a banker's son. He was filthy with money. She just moved right off to Long Island. Well, she had to win over his mother first. Oh, the mother was awful. She was so refined. That dress she had on when she played the leading part must have cost a thousand dollars. I didn't like it, though. Did you, Bethel? Did you, huh? Did you like that rhinestone dress? Bethel, I'm talking to you. Ah, oh, she's in one of a million-mile-away moves. You want to know something? What? I'm going to be a stage actress. Like that understudy in the picture. Look who's talking. You serious? I certainly am. Bethel, there aren't any stage actresses anymore. All that old-fashioned junk. Please. Uh, here's my 15 cents. I don't think I want any more of my ice cream. I'm going home, I think. So long. Did you ever? 
Now she's sore. No. No, she's not. Beth's never sore. She's just... Uh, excuse me, Alba. Guess I'll run along. Bye. Goodbye. I, I gotta get along. It was all on-the-job training. It started in that backyard of Richard Pettuccini when I said to my other friend, oh, yes, I will go over. I walked over to KMPC against the wall with high aberback, and away I went. That was the, really the first thing. Why I was able to do it, I can only say Mother Nature gave me that gift. I was. I have theories, of course, about acting, and as, as many years have passed, I've talked to younger actors and who told me about their desires and their systems and the methods and the things, and I could go on for hours about that. I think a fine actor or actress, I believe I know, a fine actor or actress is born. You don't learn to be a fine actress. You can, you can learn on the job and learn tricks. Oh my God, the mistakes I've made, of course. Of course. But the Lorene Tuttles, whoever, however she started, no one has to tell me. She was born, and I could go to the list of the people that you could remind me of that I've forgotten. Fly me to the moon and let me play among the stars. Let me see what spring is like on Jupiter and Mars. In other words, Next time on Breaking Walls, we beat the heat at our local drugstores, soda shops, and pharmacies while we tell Heartland America stories from radio's golden era. The reading material used in today's episode was On the Air by John Dunning, the CBS Radio Mystery Theater Handbook by Gordon Payton and Martin Grams Jr., Network Radio Ratings 1932-53 by Jim Ramsberg, the Museum of Broadcast Communications Encyclopedia of Radio by Christopher H. Sterling, as well as articles from Broadcast Magazine, November 3, 1947, and Billboard Magazine, May 1, 1948. On the interview front, Hyman Brown, June Havoc, Mandel Kramer, Elliot Lewis, E.G. Marshall, Jan Minor, William N. Robeson, and William Spear were with Dick Bertell and Ed Corcoran for WTIC's The Golden Age of Radio. These interviews can be heard at goldenage-wtic.org. Ralph Bell, Hyman Brown, Lawrence Dobkin, Betty Lou Gerson, and Byron Kane were with Spurdvac. For more information, please go to sperdvac.com. Hyman Brown, Virginia Gregg, Elliot Lewis, Mercedes McCambridge, Shirley Mitchell, and Alan Reed were interviewed by Chuck Shaden. Hear their full chats and many others from Chuck's over 39-year career at speakingofradio.com. While Elliot Lewis was with John Dunning on May 23, 1982, Jack Crucian, Shirley Mitchell, and George Walsh were with Jim Bohannon on September 12, 1987, and Morton Fine was with Dan Hayfley on August 9th. 1988. Selected music featured in today's episode was It's Been a Long, Long Time by Keely Smith, Smoke Gets in Your Eyes by The Mallet Men, The Big Heist and Salute to Charlie Christian by Barney Kessel, Atlantis and Roller Coaster by Les Baxter, I'll Take Manhattan by Blossom Deary, and Fly Me to the Moon by Julie London. Special thanks to our sponsors, 
the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, and the Fireside Mystery Theater. Find them both on iTunes, where there are links in the written credits. I'd also like to thank Walden Hughes and John and Larry Gassman of Spurdback. Listen to their shows on the Yesterday USA Radio Network. Breaking Walls Episode 94 will visit America's malt shops, soda fountains, drugstores, and pharmacies as we reintroduce listening audiences to some of the medium's best. This episode will be available beginning August 1st, 2019, everywhere you get your podcasts and at thewallbreakers.com. In the meantime, if you haven't yet, give Breaking Walls a quick rating on whatever podcasting platform you listen, especially iTunes. And if you've got some spare change, you can become a Patreon supporter for as little as a buck a month by going to patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. So, until August 1st, 2019, my name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls, episode 93. And I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much. Please be true.